This is Audible. Audible.com presents the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. We invite you to visit Audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks, as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including The New York Times, This American Life, The Wall Street Journal, and The New Yorker. Our final witness on this panel is Ms. Beverly Jones, Lafayette, Tennessee, one of the two plaintiffs in Lane versus Tennessee. Ms. Jones uh, is a graduate of Texas, of Tennessee State University, is a certified court reporter, more than 15 years of court reporting experience. She has a mobility impairment and she filed suit under Title II of the Americans for for ADA against Tennessee, and she got the court on a good day. It was five to four for her, unlike Garrett, which was five to four the other way. Thank you for joining us, uh, Ms. Jones, and we'll be very much interested to hear what happened to you and your testimony. Thank you, Chairman Spector and members of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, my name is Beverly Jones, and uh, even though Chairman Spector uh, pronounced it Lafayette, where I'm from, it's Lafayette, Tennessee. Uh, and I would like to thank the committee for inviting me to testify these, in these confirmation proceedings. If John Roberts is confirmed as Chief Justice, his decisions will impact the lives of Americans for decades to come. I hope that as you deliberate on these nomination, on his nomination, you will not underestimate the importance his role and decisions will have on everyone, including people like me. If I may, Mr. Chairman, I would like to share with you the importance that the Constitution, the law, and the Supreme Court have had on my life and for my rights as a person with a disability. I was a plaintiff in Tennessee versus Lane, a case that went up to the Supreme Court concerning the rights of people with disabilities to have access to the courts. The Supreme Court took the case to decide whether it could enforce the rights that Congress gave people like me under the Americans with Disabilities Act. When Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990, it found that individuals with disabilities, and I quote, have been faced with restrictions and limitations, subjected to a history of purposeful, unequal treatment, and relegated to a position of political powerness, powerlessness, close quote, based on inaccurate stereotypes. On July the 26, 1990, when President George H.W. Bush signed the law, he affirmed this finding and declared that just as we tore down the Berlin Wall to free the people of Eastern Europe, we would tear down the barriers that keep people with disabilities from participating in society. For me, the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act was like opening a door that had been closed for so long. I lost my ability to walk due to an automobile accident in 1984 and have used a wheelchair since that time. At the time I became disabled, I decided that I would not allow what I wanted in life to be denied because of my physical limitations. At the time of my accident, I was a wife and mother, but had little education and limited job skills. A local judge and attorney encouraged me to look into becoming a court reporter, and from there, my ambitions began. 
I completed court reporting school the year that the ADA was passed. But to my surprise, when I began my first assignments, I found that I could not get into many of Tennessee's courtrooms and courthouses because they were inaccessible to people who use wheelchairs. I was forced to turn down jobs or face humiliating experiences. Approximately seven out of ten courthouses in Tennessee were inaccessible when I filed my suit. In some cases, I could not even get in the door. In the years following the passage of the ADA, some courthouses became more accessible. But even in 1998, when my lawsuit was filed, a number of the courthouses I worked in remained inaccessible to me. Courtrooms were located only on upper floors and reachable only by climbing stairs. I was often forced to ask complete strangers to carry me up the stairs or into rooms, including non-accessible restrooms. This, is, this experience was humiliating and frightening, but as a single mom supporting myself and two kids, I could not afford to quit my job or strictly limit my work to accessible courthouses. After the passage of the ADA, I worked tirelessly to bring the law to the attention of public officials throughout Tennessee and to encourage them to follow the law's requirements to make public buildings, including courthouses, accessible. Because the state of Tennessee challenged the constitutionality of the ADA, my case went through the courts for six years without any court reaching the substance of my claims. In 2004, my case reached the United States Supreme Court, which voted by a 5-4 margin to uphold my right to enforce the Americans with Disabilities Act's protections. Many changes have been made in Tennessee as a result of the ruling, and I am now able to do my job with much greater ease and without humiliation or danger. My case is over. But what I have been able to accomplish with the help of Congress is not the end of the issue. For me, it would be a hollow victory to see Tennessee versus Lane as the end of the road. There are too many others who need the protections of the law and the Constitution. In fact, Congress's power to enact the ADA will be considered again on November the 9th, 2005, when the Supreme Court will hear a case called Goodman versus Georgia. This case involves a man who is in prison in Georgia and is a paraplegic, just as I am. He requires a wheelchair to move about. This man is confined in a 12-foot by 3-foot cell for 23 to 24 hours a day because of the inaccessibility of the prison facilities. He has to sleep in his wheelchair because his bed is inaccessible, and he has suffered broken bones because of his attempts to transfer from his wheelchair. On November the 9th, the court will consider whether Congress has the power to ensure that this man will be permitted to access the same services as every other prisoner in that facility. Just as I do not know Judge Roberts, I do not know Tony Goodman. I do not know if he is a good person or a bad person, but that is not the point. All I know is that just as I should not have had to endure the humiliation, embarrassment, fear and pain that I did for more than 14 years, he should not either. And if John Roberts is confirmed to Chief Justice, he must know that there are many others like Tony Goodman who need the protection of the law. 
If confirmed, the role that Judge Roberts will play in defining the boundaries of the Constitution and the power of Congress to protect citizens just like me is critical. It is my hope that the Senate will carefully review the record of John Roberts to determine if he is committed to the protection of the rights and freedoms of every American. I am not here today as an expert on John Roberts' record. I am here today to tell my story, but I do know that there are many within the disabled community who believe that John Roberts' record with respect to disability rights raises serious concerns. I understand that John Roberts has advocated that the Americans with Disabilities Act should be narrowly interpreted to protect only the so-called, quote, truly disabled. Because my case involved Congress's power to enact the Americans with Disabilities Act, I understand just how important it is to ensure that the judges on our courts respect Congress's authority to provide protections that are so desperately needed. Without the protections that Congress guaranteed in the Americans with Disabilities Act, my life and the lives of millions of others with disabilities would be a lot harder. For all of these reasons, I urge the Senate to, play, to pay close attention to whether John Roberts has proven that he would ensure that the rights of people with disabilities fought so hard to secure are not stripped away. Members of the Senate, I hope that you will give John Roberts' record very careful scrutiny before voting on his nomination. I hope that the rights of millions of Americans with disabilities are important enough to merit that type of careful consideration. Thank, Thank you, you uh, very much, uh, Ms. Jones, for your very poignant uh, story. Uh, as I had said earlier, we have many, many witnesses today. We still have 12 more witnesses to hear. And while there are many questions which uh, would be very fruitful uh, when we divided up the the witnesses 15 for the Democrats and 15 for the Republicans. We wanted to bring on as many people as we could to hear your stories and see your faces and feel your take your pulse and see the quality of your testimony and, and passion both, both for and against. Um, but I'm not going to ask any questions. I'm just going to make one observation uh, as to your case, uh, Ms. Jones. I had a chance to talk to your lawyer. And there's very strong sentiment in this Congress, both sides of the aisle, uh, to protect Americans with disabilities. Senator Dole, who's not with us any longer, has been a real leader, but people on this dais now were very instrumental in, in that legislation. And uh, we're not going to let the Supreme Court get away with congruence and uh, proportionality. Um, your lawyer's nodding in the affirmative. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, that point was made fairly, fairly emphatically, so that uh, uh, congressional will reflecting the people and having very important social programs will be uh, be carried out. Senator Leahy, do you have questions? I don't have a question, but just to say this, Mr. Chairman, one, I applaud you for what you said, but I, when I voted for the Americans for Disabilities Act, I voted for an act that I expect would be enforced. I voted for an act that would open those doors. I voted for an act so that Beverly Jones could go to work uh, and others could. Uh, the, one of my dearest friends who spends his life in a wheelchair, that he can go anywhere he wants. And if you knew him, you'd know he wants to go anywhere he wants. Um, 
We'll keep on working to make sure it's it's enforced. Thank you, that, that, that wasn't an empty gesture to vote for it. We want to act. It's actually going to work, and Republicans and Democrats alike join hands on that one. Thank you, Senator Lee. Senator Hatch, question? Uh, Ms. Yeah, Ms. Jones, I, I managed a bill on the floor for our side and uh, was one of the prime authors of it. So we're, we're on your side on this. Thank and, you. Uh, and uh, the Supreme Court is one thing, we're another. And we'll surely try to make sure that your rights are, are protected. I just have one question for you, Ms. Greenberger, and that is, has your organization ever endorsed a Republican nominee for the Supreme Court? Well, our organization actually rarely uh, takes positions, in fact, the very you first time we ever in favor of a Republican did. nominee, maybe I should put it that way, for the Supreme Court? We have rarely been taken a position, period, and I don't, I don't think that's probably, I, I don't think we have. On either. the other hand, there are a number of Republican nominees for the Supreme Court that we have not opposed, and of course many women's organizations that we are a part in the coalition were very strong supporters of Sandra Day O'Connor's nomination. At that period in our history, we hadn't ever taken a position with respect to a judicial nomination and didn't up until the late 80s. Um, I think what we learned over time as an organization that's so involved with the courts is that when we work on legislation like Title IX or we try to represent clients like Mr. Jackson, if the judges are hostile and, and don't have the kind of open mind that we're looking for, whatever their political persuasion may be, then there really isn't the sense of justice at the end of the day and those legal rights don't really matter. Well, I think whether they're Republicans or Democrats, they ought to have an open mind on women's Absolutely. issues. Absolutely. I don't think there's any question about that. Your organization is closely affiliated with the Alliance for Justice and the National Organization for Women as well. Well, we are a member of the Alliance. The National Organization for Women is uh, an organization act that we've worked with on you know a range of different issues, like many, many different types of organizations of all different sorts over the many years that we've worked, whether it's involving child care or involving some of the issues where Senator Hatch, you've been such a strong supporter, like child care. I think it is some good, but let me ask you this, what I'm trying to get to is, do you know of any Republican, let, let's just say from Chief Justice Rehnquist when he was nominated for Chief Justice on through to the day, who your organization, Alliance for Justice, or now has has ever supported or has ever found to be worthy of being on the Supreme Court? Well, I, I can't speak for those two organizations, but I know that there are a number of uh, Republican judges over time who have been some of the strongest supporters for civil rights and women's rights. There's been a, a very proud tradition a bipartisan tradition of justice and equity over the nation's history that hasn't been limited by party. Uh, so, and that's certainly uh, what I would hope that we would be able to see in the future. And in fact, we hadn't taken a position with respect to John Roberts for his Court of Appeals nomination and did so this time only, as I said in my prepared testimony, because when we looked at the record that was available to us,
we were honestly taken aback at how many of the core women's legal rights that are at the heart of our mission, he had worked to narrow, and that's what led us to take the position, not his, not his party affiliation, not the administration that nominated him. Thank you, Senator Harris. Senator Kennedy. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I, I want to, first of all, uh, Beverly Jones, I want to thank you. Uh, this is not an easy uh, task to, uh, to go out and talk about uh, some of the physical challenges that you've had over the course of your life, but it's an extraordinary story, and it has to be one that gives people great, great inspiration. It's a really a story. It's a uh, just a really impressive story, and you deserve enormous credit for your uh, your own courage and, and perseverance. Uh, it is interesting to know that there were four judges in the Supreme Court, even. Uh, realizing the language that you read correctly from the ADA that did not s uh, decide uh, your way. And I can only imagine what your life would have been like if there had been five on this part. Just uh, uh, a question about uh, how, how much sort of discrimination or lack of understanding uh, is out there with regard to people with, with disabilities that still needs addressing. Not that we can answer all of the problems or challenges, but how much of this do, do you still see out there? You want to make just a brief comment about the progress we're making or the way we still, how far we still have to go? Just briefly, I have used a wheelchair for 21 years, and I have seen great improvements, uh, not only in Tennessee, but across the country. However, there uh, is still a lack of understanding, and I think a lot of it is people's lack of exposure to people with disabilities. And, and I think I bring that to the table as far as an understanding, because I was a person without a disability for 20 years. So I understand what people do not understand, because until I was put in that position and became that person with a disability, I was not forced to look at it. So I think a lot of the uh, problems out there today are based on um, just people not being exposed to people with disabilities for the most part. Thank you. Just uh, uh, Coach Jackson, I thank you so much for being here. I, I wanted to ask you um, and admire you uh, for your own courage in, in protesting the discrimination against young women. What would have been the impact if the uh, Supreme Court had dismissed your case instead of recognizing that you had a right to Thank you for that uh, to question. Challenge the retaliation against you. Thank you for that question, Senator Kennedy. Uh, I think if the decision had went the other way, I think that decision would have sent a message to school systems and school boards across the nation that it's okay to retaliate against persons who bring uh, discrimination claims uh, uh, against the system. Uh, it would have been a big setback, I think to not only Title IX and athletics, but also the other civil rights laws and anti-discrimination laws. Do you think the uh, young women still are facing a, a discrimination in sports uh, today, colleges, or is it give us a quick thumbnail sketch? There's no doubt in my mind that uh, discrimination is still out there, uh, even for persons who represent young ladies. Uh, for example, when you're a girls coach, it's, it's even hard to move over to the boys position if it opens and if you apply for it. So uh, once you're labeled a quote, uh, end quote, girls coach, it's like it's a step down and it shouldn't be that way in my opinion. Marsha, uh, Marsha Bringree-Berger, uh, you mentioned the Roberts statement in a memo that it's a canard that women 
are discriminated against because they receive 59 cents for every dollar earned by men. Is there any justification for Robert's assertion that such a wide pay gap between men and women is not evidence of discrimination against women? Well, there have been many studies. Of course, that was a statement that was made, you know, 20, approximately 20 years ago. And I think if you ask most women in the country 20 years ago, was part of the pay gap due, at least part of the pay gap due to discrimination, I think they'd say yes. I think their husbands would say yes, too. Um, we've made progress, no question about it. But I think if you ask husbands or wives, men or women today, do they still see a problem of equal pay for women? The answer would be yes. And definitely a piece of that is still, unfortunately, sex discrimination. And it isn't just a question of asking people. Studies have shown from 20 years ago up until today, including government studies, that an aspect of the pay gap can only be explained by discrimination. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Kennedy. Senator Kyle. Chairman, I think all of us would like to uh, uh, both compliment these witnesses for their testimony and also ask questions in, in the interest of time. I, I won't do that. I, I just would make one observation. It's obvious that from the testimony that he gave, we can't know how Judge Roberts would vote in cases that are going to come before him. But uh, in law, there's something called the best evidence rule. And perhaps the best evidence of the kind of person that Judge Roberts is is illustrated by the testimony, for example, of Ms. Stetson, who talked about her role as a young mother and uh, an aspiring partner in a firm, a person that he helped to mentor. And I think the kinds of things that she talked about in Judge Roberts as a person should not be forgotten by us when we uh, consider uh, the nature of the man that we are uh, elevating to the United States Supreme Court. It may be the best evidence of the way that he will rule on cases as well. Certainly hope so, and I thank all of you for your testimony here. Thank you, Senator Carl. Senator Biden. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. This is an impressive panel, all of them. You know, uh, I may be mistaken, but I think other than Senator Kennedy, I've voted for or against more Supreme Court justices than anybody here, other than uh, three other senators but on this panel. And, you know, it's been an evolving process for me trying to figure out the right thing to do over the last 33 years. And I came to the conclusion about 10 years, well, that's not true, 17 years ago, that there's only three ways I can decide to vote my hopes or my fears. One is that, um, do I know people well who know the nominee well? For example, when, uh, when, uh, when the uh, justice, former Supreme Court uh, justice from New Hampshire came up, I was one of the few Democrats who immediately strongly supported him and pushed him in the Republican administration because there were four people. One, a uh, a governor, a Republican governor of New Hampshire, and two others. One's now the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New Hampshire, a Democrat. The other was a federal judge from New Hampshire, a Democrat. And the third is another Democrat who heads up the National Education Association. They all came down to see me, and they said, look, we share a vacation home with him on Lake Winnipesaukee. I'll tell you, this guy's a straight guy. This guy doesn't have an agenda. And even though he didn't have much of a record, that convinced me that I should vote my hopes 
I'm glad I did. Um, uh, there's another way to look at it. You can look at what they've written um, and make your judgment based on that if you don't have any evidence on the first score. And the third is you look at what they say when they come before the committee. I have been impressed by you, Ms. Stetson, as well as you, Ms. Wright, um, because I wish I knew you both better, because you obviously care very much about this judge, and you think he is going to be uh, basically a mainstream, decent, honorable guy who will not take a narrow view of the Constitution. Um, uh, and so it's worthwhile for me to, the reason I'm taking the time is to tell you that. And it also, uh, but concerns me. Um, uh, I'm very impressed by the testimony of, uh, of uh, Mr. Jackson and Ms. Jones uh, because you illustrate what's at stake here. What's at stake? And Ms. Greenberger sort of lays out uh, the, uh, the problem. I uh, submit for the record, Mr. Chairman, uh, a series of questions I asked in this hearing of the Justice, uh, of, uh, excuse me, Judge uh, um, uh, Roberts. And he used the same language that Judge Thomas used with me. Um, he said, I have no quarrel with the majority opinion. And I'd press him and say, well, do you agree or don't agree? And he said, well, I can't comment on that. Well, that's the same position that Judge Thomas took. And uh, to give you an illustration of how fundamentally different that is, I'm going to conclude by pointing out how different it would be in Mr. Jackson's case. Um, uh, um, in that case, uh, writing for the minority opinion, Justice Thomas stated, we require Congress to speak unambiguously in imposing conditions on funding recipients through its spending power, i.e., we didn't speak clearly enough, therefore you can be fired. Now, Justice O'Connor, a Republican appointee, taking the same exact language, said, and I quote, our repeated holdings constitute discrimination under Title IX broadly, broadly. And she reached a different result. So I just raise for the panel um, and for anyone who's listening that the situation of Ms. Jones and Mr. Jackson and millions of people like them across America depend on things like whether or not it must be unambiguous, the language, as it's applied, or it must be applied broadly. That's the difference between life and death. That's the difference between freedom and lack of freedom. That's the difference between autonomy and no respect for autonomy. That's the difference between being having the right to be let alone, as one famous justice once said, and allowing the government to intrude into your life. That's the decision I have to make, all of us have to make, and I must tell you, absent the, the testimony of you, Ms. Stetson, and you, Ms. Wright, I, I didn't think there was ever any prospect I could make it, but I have great respect for both of you, but I must tell you, I am, it's, it comes down to that difference among honorable, decent, proud women and men who serve in the court. And, uh, my question is, is Justice Roberts going to be a Scalia, a Rehnquist, or maybe a Kennedy? If I think he's going to be a Justice Scalia, who I like personally very much, I vote no. If I think he's going to be a Kennedy, I vote yes. If he thinks he's going to be a Rehnquist, I probably vote yes, because it won't change anything. But anyway, thanks for your testimony. It's helping me be more confused. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> thank you, Senator Biden. Senator DeWine, I have no questions, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Senator Feinstein? 
I'm sorry I missed um, much of this testimony, but I was just trying to read your um, brief, uh, Marcia, and uh, it's too much to digest quickly. It's a very impressive document. But I was, I was reading part of it, and I wanted to ask you this question. Did you not think that the discussion on Roe with Senator Specter in particular, um, the discussion on Griswold and Casey, uh, the discussion on stare decisis and reliance, and the fact that Roe had been in place for 32 years, and the findings of Griswold and Casey with respect to Roe, uh, workability, that as Senator Specter has said, that super precedent is really in play. Uh, I think I even heard him once say super duper precedent. <laughs> Could that be? I, I said super duper uh, in the context of some 38 occasions when the court has had the Roe issue before. They could have overruled Roe had they decided to do so. So right. if we become a super precedent with the reaffirmation, maybe you become a super duper or maybe even more, super-duper-duper. Super-duper-duper. <laughs> 38 times over. But it's been a long hearing. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, because you watch all of this very closely, um, from the time you wrote this, would you write the same thing after the hearing? Well, I, if you could indulge me, I just want to say one thing uh, and to correct something I, I said incorrectly with res uh, in answer to uh, Senator Hatch's question about whether I, I hesitate to speak for other organizations, but I'm pretty certain that the National Organization for Women actually did endorse Senator Dale O'Connor. He asked if any organizations, and specifically mentioned now, had ever endorsed a Republican nominee, and I said I wasn't, I really didn't know, but I'm pretty close to sure that they did with respect to Sandra Day O'Connor. But now to this very quite important question that you asked, um, it, we listened very, very closely, hoping to find some uh, reason to put our fears at, at rest. And in fact, when we wrote that report, we said that it was con our judgment there was contingent on what happened at the hearing. Unfortunately, what I heard at the hearing was a very articulate explanation by Judge Roberts of what all the factors are to be considered when you look at a precedent of the Supreme Court, but no indication on his part of how he would apply those factors. And each time he was pressed about whether it was a super duper precedent, whether he was asked about it in the context of Roe or asked about it in the context of Casey, he said, which reinforced the essential holdings of Roe. Let me as stop you. Well know. Let me stop you. Yeah. Again. I mean, I think there was significance in the fact that he laid it out at all, because he didn't have to do that. And um, I didn't really expect he would ever answer that question, one way or another. And I think it's an unrealistic unreal uh, expectation. 
my interest was to, to see would he be open to reviewing various things carefully and cautiously or did he come in with a bias was he and uh, we all grant that he's conservative and there's nothing right, wrong of course. I mean, he's conservative right. um, I mean, the, the, the nominee that I would anticipate from this pre president would have been really conservative, would have come in here and would have said what he was going to do, and probably could have mustered the votes. But it would have been definitive. I don't see anything that's definitive. And I do see things that provide a level to believe that this is a fine legal scholar who will truly look at the law. I think he said he gave a s serious regard to precedent. Um, we've pulled all his 50 cases. I can't imagine what my weekend is going to mm. be like reading those, but in any event. Um, sure. it comment on this for a minute. Sure is. Well, I, I think that there's been a lot of discussion in the hearings about what it means to be a conservative justice and the difference between being an activist justice who doesn't have respect for precedent to the same degree as a true conservative justice would. And so there is nothing wrong with being a conservative justice and clearly uh, many are on the Supreme Court right now. When you look at what happened with the confirmation hearings of other nominees to the Supreme Court, what emerged with re those a number, and especially with Clarence See, Thomas, in front of the pattern was to describe what the law was and what the holdings were, and to spend a lot of time describing it, and certainly Judge Roberts is brilliant, everyone has said it, it's beyond dispute, and so he is fully familiar and perfectly capable and extraordinarily able when he describes what the holdings of courts are with respect to how you treat precedent. So yes, he did that in a magnificent way, but when it came time to give any sense of what he would do with all those factors, he used the same formulation that Justice Thomas did in not signaling in any way how he would actually apply those factors. And you very effectively asked him specifically about each of the factors. You broke each of those down. I remember your questioning very well. And he agreed with you because you did a lot of that work in identifying each of the factors you consider when you review precedents. And he agreed that those were factors. Of course, he said he would look at them with an open mind. I would expect him to say nothing less. But he never gave any indication at the end of the day. And of course, we knew he wouldn't. But in response to many other questions from those who may be holding out hope he would overturn Roe v. Wade, he gave them assurance too. And that he did not feel bound by precedent. 
and that there would be a lot of different ways of finally deciding. And what at the what I was struck by with Griswold, because you asked me about that too. Ms. Broomberger, could you summarize your thought here? Okay. Because we're running I, way over. Okay, time. sorry. What, what I was struck by, I'll try to just do this in a sentence. With respect to Griswold, you went back actually just this morning and looked at his specific answers in comparison to Justice Thomas, and it was absolutely eerie to see how close they were. Each one said they agreed with Griswold. Each one said they would not have a quarrel with Eisenstadt v. Baird that talked about applying Griswold to unmarried couples. And we looked at the testimony, and with Senator DeConcini asking Justice Thomas, when you say you have no quarrel with something, and he get, used that exact formulation this morning with you, Senator Feinstein, also with respect to Plyler v. Doe, Tom, Justice Thomas was asked, do you mean something different by say, when you say you have no quarrel with than saying you don't, that you agree with? And Judge Thomas said, yes, I mean something different when I say I have no quarrel with. And therefore, when I was listening so closely to those answers, I did not come away, I'll, I'll just finish, I, didn't, not, I did not come away with reassurance. Ms. Greenberg, I'm reluctant to interrupt you. Sorry. But we're way over time, way, way over time. Do you have anything further, uh, Senator Feinstein? Senator Sessions? Coach Jackson, we're glad to have you here, and thank you for your loyalty to your students and players and, and the courage to stand up. Um, you know, I admire people who, in businesses or big organizations like school Good, systems and state government, uh, have the gumption to stand in there for what they believe in. I'm sure it was a long battle, and, and uh, you're gratified by that result. And I'm informed that while you're here, this may be the first time in 18 years you've missed one of your uh, kids' games. Is, is that correct? Uh, actually, that was last uh, year when I came up for the Supreme uh -huh. Court argument. Uh -huh. Oh, that case? Right. Yes, sir. Well, that's uh -huh. a remarkable record of fidelity to your students, and uh, thank you for your service to young people in Alabama. Thank you. Um, you know, uh, I see Mr. Uh, Matello and Ms. Wright, uh, Democrats, I believe, that have expressed such strong support for Judge Roberts. I read in the record earlier today our uh, former uh, Democratic Attorney General Bill Baxley, an excellent, superb lawyer in the state, who worked on three cases with Judge <laughs> Roberts, and I introduced his record that was so effusive in his praise for Judge uh, uh, Roberts. And uh, Ms. Stetson, on C-SPAN, I just happened to catch late one night, within the last week, an interview by a um, member, Hogan Hartson, I believe, Ms. Uh, Brannon. Is that a member of the firm? Yes, yes, uh, she is. And she said she had been on the campaign trail with John Kerry and was a Democrat, and it was just uh, an incredibly beautiful uh, statement by her, maybe 15 or more, maybe 30 minutes, discussing her experience with uh, Judge Roberts, how fair and objective he was, how much the firm admired him, uh, how collegial he was, how he was uh, highly uh, intelligent, but was not a bookworm, that he, he met the people in the firm, was always open to questions. Uh, um, is that the, his reputation within the firm? 
That, that's absolutely his reputation within the firm. Everyone that I've spoken to about the judge, everyone who knows the judge, who worked with the judge, uh, I think would come forward and say the same thing. Well, I think it's important for us to note that uh, uh, Democrats uh, also who know him um, and who uh, are not uh, 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 who are being objective and, and who may have voted for President uh, someone else than President Bush are very supportive of, of uh, our Judge Roberts. I notice, um, I know that, Ms. Greenberger, that you sort of represent a coalition of groups that are the um, point people for the activist judiciary. I think that's fair to say, and I remember and, and had it just pulled up and I, I found it, uh, a 2001 New York Times article. Uh, it discussed a um, retreat that the Democratic senators had in 2001 for the purpose of forging a unified party strategy to combat the White House judicial nominees. And uh, you and Professor Tribe and, and Professor Cass Sunstein appeared, uh, according to the article, and um, uh, it states that you said to them it was important for the Senate to change the ground rules of confirmations. Uh, and uh, not to confirm one simply because they were scholarly or erudite. So I guess my question to you is, uh, are you the architect of the uh, filibuster strategy? Do you claim credit for that? <laughs> well, uh, as I'm sure Senator Sessions, you know you can't trust always what reporters say in terms of the accuracy <laughs> of uh, and I never talked about changing the ground rules uh, for confirmations at all. So uh, I'm not certain about that article, but that certainly wasn't uh, anything I would have said. But what I did and do believe uh, then and do believe now is that looking at somebody's record is absolutely essential. And, uh, and, I, and I agree, I think, Senator Sessions, with you too, that there are a lot of issues to be taken into consideration. Personal qualities, absolutely. But also, this Supreme Court, and I know you've said this many times, makes an enormous difference in people's lives and who will fill that precious seat of Chief Justice couldn't be more important. And I just, because you brought that article uh, up, to me, record is so essential. And there was one other point I, I wanted to make with respect to the record. I, I heard this morning a reference to a study of Judge Roberts' record on the D.C. Circuit. And of course, he hasn't been a judge for very long. So by definition, it's a very limited record. And it was pointed out by, in this study, uh, which I'm the first to say I haven't had a chance to see, that in some uh, worker and labor issues, he actually sided more with the Democratic side of appointed judges. But the same article in the Washington Post that described that also said for civil rights and civil liberties cases, albeit for a very limited record, of course, according to this article, he was four times more likely to vote against the plaintiffs in those cases for civil rights and civil liberties than the average appellate judge on the bench today. And that was very sobering, I must say, with respect to the record. Thank you I very think much. I sure. On those cases, I believe the panels were about 97% unanimous on the, those rulings. And I would offer this article from the New York Times for the record.
without objection, it will be admitted. Senator Leahy, I just one follow-up question for uh, Mr. Jackson. It's not really a follow-up. I, I, and with this running back and forth, I missed part of the schedule. I, I just, Coach, I admire you. I know I, I, I've sat on so many hearings with whistleblowers in government or federal government, state government. I know it, it, it's very, very tough to be uh, a whistleblower. It's tough to stand up for equal treatment. We heard a bit earlier from John Lewis and Nathan Jones and other leaders in the civil rights movement. Uh, Coach, you stood up in a very great tradition, the great tradition where Rosa Parks sat down to make the same point and Dr. King marched and others have protested and lobbied for justice. I think your children, your team should be very, very proud of you. I know I am. I hope your school appreciates you. I hope they value your participation. And I hope a lot of people in the country were listening to you because, by golly, if something's not being done right, stand up, speak up, and thank God there's people like you. Thank you. Thank you. Coach Jackson, you're going to be regarded differently when you go back to your school. <laughs> okay. That'd be not okay. but, but, but I'm not sure which way. Okay. Okay. <laughs> to be commended by the Senate committee, which I think uh, this is one issue we can be unanimous on. Thank you all very, very much. We move now to uh, panel number five, uh, Professor Freed, Professor Edelman. If uh, number five would uh, come forward, we'd appreciate it. While they're coming forward, Mr. Chairman, could I ask consent the number of letters regarding the nomination be included in the record? Without objection, they will be made a part of the record. Our first witness on this panel is uh, Professor Charles Freed, beneficial professor of law at Harvard, served as Solicitor General for four years, uh, for four years was on the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts as an Associate Justice, undergraduate degree from Princeton, law degree from Columbia, bachelor and master's from Oxford, an extraordinary academic and professional record. Professor Freed, uh, uh, if the witnesses could uh, move in and out, well, I'd appreciate it. Professor Reed, we're going to start your time now because we're running very close. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. It is a great privilege to be allowed to participate in this historic hearing these, for such an important event. And it's particularly a privilege because I've been watching these hearings, and I must say they have been a model of intelligence, fairness, substantiveness, and civility. Thank you. I warmly support Judge Roberts because I am persuaded he knows the difference between law and politics. I think that not because I know him well, I hardly know him at all, but because I have studied his judicial writings. Politics, at its best, as this distinguished group of senators knows, is the art of recognizing and doing the best you can for the people you are responsible for. The judge does his or her best too, but the judge is hemmed in by the law. Not in any simple-minded way, not in any mechanical way, by the intent of the framers only, by the text of the statute only, and Judge Roberts does not believe that. He has told you so, and in his opinions he has written so. But by precedent, 
by the words of the statutes, but also by legis uh, legislative history, by tradition, and the craft of the law. Judge Roberts seems to understand this down to his shoes, understand it with grace and humanity. My former boss, uh, Dick Thornburg, stole a number of my lines because I too wanted to read to you that first paragraph from the Hedgepath opinion because it shows a man who not only has a head but a heart. But the other thing it showed was that though he has a heart as well as a head, he understood that if he were to say that what happened there violated the Constitution, he would be unfaithful to Supreme Court precedent, which he was bound to adhere to, and in fact, he would have been really worse than unfaithful to it. The other thing which he might have thought is, well, this is a terrible result. He said that it was a terrible result, and I can get away with it because the case is probably too trivial for the Supreme Court to take on review. But that is not the man who you are passing on today. In that opinion, you see his authentic voice and character. As I read and hear some of the criticisms of Judge Roberts' judging, I wonder whether we are talking about the same man. I wonder whether the critics are not really complaining that Judge Roberts didn't start with the result, their result, and then wrestle the law around until it fitted. That is not the man you are passing on. And when I think of some of the cases which he decided, which have become controversial in these hearings, not just the French Fry case, but of course the hapless toad case as well, which Professor Belia will be talking about. When you consider his decision about arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act, where there is a congressional act, a congressional act mandating that there be a preference for arbitration. When I consider the opinion which he did not write, but which he joined in the Hamden case, what I see is a fidelity to law, not the pursuit of an agenda. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Professor Freed. Uh, we turn now to Professor Peter Edelman from the Georgetown Law School, where he has been since 1982. He took leave from 1993 to work in President Clinton's administration as counselor to Health and Human Services Secretary Donna Shalala and as Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation. He had worked as Legislative Counsel for Senator Robert Kennedy. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg and Henry Friendly of the U.S. Court of Appeals. <laughs> On the background, uh, Professor Edelman, thank you for coming in today, and the floor is yours. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here, and I appreciate the opportunity to testify. And, I join Professor Freed in complimenting uh, the committee as a citizen on the civility of these proceedings and, and the way in which uh, there's an opportunity to educate our country. I think uh, after that we probably disagree. Uh, I, I am here to urge that this nomination uh, of Judge Roberts be uh, rejected. 
the history of, of the decisions interpreting uh, our Constitution is one that over the two plus centuries uh, is one of greatly increasing protection for the rights and liberties of our, of our people. Uh, the evolution in the meaning of the open-ended language has meant more respect for individual rights and liberties against governmental overreaching and at the same time more power for Congress to act to protect people against exploitation and injury by special interests. And uh, as many witnesses have said, this has all made a great difference in the lives of millions of, of Americans, uh, the two witnesses on the previous panel. Uh, so who sits on the court uh, matters really crucially for all of us. And uh, as Senator Biden uh, talked about the record as one criterion uh, before the earlier uh, uh, panel, uh, Senator Kyle talked about best evidence. And I think that the best evidence we have here is, a, is really a long record over a long period of time, unlike some nominees that come before this uh, committee, not just his judicial record. Uh, and I'm, to me, uh, and I did start out looking into this and doing the reading uh, w without a particular view other than knowing Judge Roberts' reputation as a very uh, intelligent and able lawyer uh, and, and as a conservative. Um, but what I've, I've concluded is really uh, that, uh, that it adds up to a troubling uh, likelihood that we have here uh, a nominee who is Chief Justice is really going to try to turn the clock back on this pattern of protection that I talked about. And it's not about one particular case that might be overruled. Uh, as to any one case, as important as it is, uh, uh, it's difficult to figure out what he might uh, do. It's really about his judicial philosophy across the board uh, in a whole lot of areas. It's how he views the Constitution as a whole. And, and it's where that will take him in particular cases in many different kinds of, of questions. He says a lot of the uh, memos uh, from the early 80s were a young staff lawyer done at the behest of his superiors. I think he's too modest. Uh, because uh, you look at that and over and over again, those are memoranda that often he wrote on his own initiative uh, or in response to a question, recommendations for action were requested. There's no decision already made, and, and he was at the right fringe uh, of even his conservative colleagues in the Reagan administration. And so um, that's, that's the issue here, and this, this is a, a kind of a pure uh, case about the direction that a nominee is going to take. There's no, there's no question about his intelligence, his ability as a lawyer, his integrity, his character. Those are not an issue. The issue is one of a conservatism that I think really radically threatens the meaning of the Constitution as we know it. He said the other day that judging is like being an umpire, just calling balls and strikes, and I, I'm not one for, for adding to the pile of sports analogies here. But you know, if the umpire stands two steps to the right behind the catcher, strikes are going to look like balls and many balls are going to look like strikes. And so I think the analogy is remarkably disingenuous. Uh, constitutional interpretation is not like calling balls and strikes. Why do we have five to four decisions? These are matters of first impression where uh, the, the precedent is to be looked at, but they're there because the decision has not been made on the issue. And so what we're here is trying to, trying to see, trying, trying to compare these strong differences of view that exist, five to four, about the meaning of the text, because that's the heart of it, 
the intention of the framers, and all the other relevant history and societal values. And so it's subtle and complex, and there's a deep division and debate, and that's why this nomination is so uh, important. Um, we're really looking at a question of what our Constitution is all about, and, and we're looking about whether it's about fundamental principles of protection of individual rights and liberties, or really uh, a much more cramped and crab, crabbed view of those things. And, you know, we've changed over the course of a century. The, the, the cramped view was where we were a hundred years ago, and I'm, I'm afraid from looking at the record here uh, that uh, as a Chief Justice, Judge Roberts is going to work to take us back uh, in time. Uh, many of you remember the hearings. We all remember the hearings of, of uh, Judge on Judge Bork's nomination. He made things easy for the committee. He put it all in one article in the Indiana Law Journal. There it was, uh, and uh, we could uh, the committee could decide, the Senate could decide. Judge Roberts is what I call Bork by accretion, uh, bit by bit. Uh, memo by memo, speech by speech, and now opinion by opinion. And I think what it adds up to is far more radically conservative than Judge Bork. And so if you go through the list of issues, Senator Kennedy, you asked him about a series of civil rights issues. Others have asked about other matters. When you add them all up, I think you have a pattern in each of these areas, civil rights, civil liberties, access to justice, uh, a whole uh, series of things, and then the pattern adds up to a pattern. And so that is why I'm here really to testify, uh, because I think that what the pattern adds up to is a dangerous recipe for our nation, uh, one that may result in injury and renewed vulnerability for literally millions of Americans who fought for decades and even centuries to be included in our constitutional promises. So I do urge this, the committee and the Senate to reject this nomination. Thank you for the chance uh, to testify. Breaking protocol just a little, Professor Edelman. Do you really think Judge Bork made it easy for the committee? <laughs> uh, I think I think you don't it have was, to answer I, that I, question. I, uh, you have a right appreciate to... the comment, Senator, Mr. <laughs> Chairman. Our next witness is uh, Professor Patricia Abelia Delia from Notre Dame, an extraordinary academic record, summa cum laude from Harvard, a Yale Law School uh, graduate, uh, clerk for Justice O'Connor, and uh, before that, uh, Judge Cabrini's of the Second Circuit. Uh, thank you for uh, coming in today, uh, Professor Pelea, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and other distinguished members of this committee. It's an honor for me to appear before you in support of the President's nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the United States. I've never worked with Judge Roberts. Indeed, I've never met him. But during my time in Washington as a law clerk and as a lawyer in the Justice Department, I've had the privilege to know his work as an advocate before the Supreme Court. More recently, in my teaching and research in constitutional law and other areas, I've come to know his work as a judge in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. In my view, the best evidence of how a nominee will perform as a judge is how he has performed as a judge. I've read all of the opinions that Judge Roberts has written in his time on the D.C. Circuit. His service on that court demonstrates beyond doubt that he resolves cases with competence, care, and fair-mindedness. Most importantly, his jurisprudence on the Court of Appeals demonstrates in decided fashion that Judge Roberts does not seek in his decisions to advance any platform of any current political ideology. He is joined in written opinions upholding claims of criminal defendants and joined in written opinions denying such claims. He's both accepted and rejected challenges to executive agency action claimed to be unlawful. 
He's interpreted statutes with great care, with a primary focus on the text that Congress has enacted, but never categorically dismissing any evidence that's probative of congressional intent. His opinions, be they for the court or for himself, display no rancor. Rather, they're notable for the respect and care with which they outline any disagreement he might have with the positions of litigants or his colleagues on the court. Nor do his opinions betray any impatience for the claims of any class of litigants. The occasional hints of exasperation in Judge Roberts' opinions are reserved for the district court judge or the administrative agency that's decided upon the rights and claims of individuals without providing the considered explanation to which he believes all persons who find themselves before our tribunals are entitled. It's therefore no surprise to find in Judge Roberts' opinion, opinions an extensive and careful scrutiny of the individual claims that each case squarely presents, no more and no less. There's not the time here for me to analyze each opinion that Judge Roberts has written on the Court of Appeals. And my written testimony examines in detail two areas of structural constitutional law in which Judge Roberts' work has been subject to criticism. The first involving questions of congressional power and the second involving questions of executive power, particularly in foreign affairs. Here I'll simply allude to the first of those controversies and explain briefly why I believe that the criticisms are unfounded. A claim has been made that Judge Roberts takes an unduly narrow view of Congress's power under the Commerce Clause, one that endangers a variety of civil rights statutes and environmental regulations that Congress has justly designed to protect the equal rights of all Americans in the environment in which we live. This concern stems from Judge Roberts' opinion in a case called Rancho Viejo versus Norton, the hapless toad case. In that case, a housing developer, after losing a Commerce Clause challenge to a particular application of the Federal Endangered Species Act, sought rehearing of its claim before the full Court of Appeals. The active members of the D.C. Circuit declined to rehear the case, and Judge Roberts dissented from that denial of rehearing. It's important to establish precisely what Judge Roberts' dissent says and what it does not say. The dissent does not show that Judge Roberts believed the Endangered Species Act to be unconstitutional as applied in this case or as applied in any other case. Rather, he believed that the particular methodology that the court employed in deciding the case was out of step with Supreme Court doctrine. He took care to point out that en banc review would afford the court the opportunity to consider alternative grounds for sustaining application of the act that may be more consistent with Supreme Court precedent. Rather than demonstrating a hostility to, to congressional power, the dissent demonstrates a care, concern that courts provide the right reasons for their decisions. That concern is, of course, well-founded, as the reasons that courts provide in support of their decisions are central to the corpus of law that will guide judicial action in subsequent cases. A discussion of single opinion in isolation certainly cannot capture the depth and care and respect for every litigant that Judge Roberts' opinions display. And I'd welcome the opportunity to discuss other aspects of Judge Roberts' opinions in response to your questions. But I believe that his jurisprudence on the Court of Appeals reflects the best of what we can and should expect of a nominee to the Supreme Court of the United States. His decisions defy categorization as conservative or liberal, Republican or Democrat. Indeed, Judge Roberts himself has refused to characterize himself as subscribing to any particular judicial philosophy. He says that he simply decides every case as it comes before him according to the law as best he can discern it. What he has accomplished thus far in the Court of Appeals demonstrates that he's truthfully represented himself to the American public. Simply put, He's demonstrated that he possesses one of our nation's foremost legal minds, that he employs that mind with full fairness and integrity, and in all of this, that he well deserves the tr our trust to lead our nation's judiciary. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Valeria. Thank you for being so close to time. Three seconds, you'll uh, yield it back. Our next witness is Professor 
Judith Resnick, the Arthur Lyman Professor of Law at uh, Yale. Uh, interesting to see that they have a chair for Arthur Lyman, who was in law school uh, when I was there. She teaches uh, on the feminist theory, gender procedure, co-chair of the Women's Faculty Forum, a member of the Ninth Circuit Gender Bias Task Force. That's quite a title. And uh, co-author of the monograph, Effects of Gender. Thank you very much for coming again, uh, Professor Resnick, and we look forward to your testimony. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to participate, and I've submitted a written statement for the record. In these five minutes... You made a part of the record in full. Thank you. I'm going to make five fast points. First, while I'm here because I was invited by this committee, we are all here in this room with a TV because the Constitution has invited us all. The Constitution has committed to the political branches of the United States the decision about who shall be our life-tenured judges. The President nominates, the Senate confirms. We're part of a national teach-in about America, its values, and what the courts stand for. In recent years, the confirmation process has been criticized. Some have been difficult. But conflict is not an artifact of these cameras or of the conflicts over Bork and Thomas. It goes back hundreds of years. Remember that in the 1790s, the Senate did not affirm the Chief Justice because they disagreed with John Rutledge's view of a treaty with England. In the 19th century, it was a debate about railroads and unions. We've seen time and again that we debate our values through this process. So in other words, this hearing is not only about John Roberts, it's about us, Americans, what we care about for our system of justice. Point one. Point two. This is no ordinary hearing, even though it's about a life-tenured appointment to the United States Supreme Court. This is about who's going to be the Chief Justice of the United States, the 17th person in our entire history to hold that position. The job of the Chief has not remained static. It's grown enormously over the 20th century as a law professor of the federal courts and of adjudication and civil procedure. We get to credit William Howard Taft and most recently the extraordinary work of William Rehnquist. The person who wears the robe of the Chief Justice, striped or basic black, <laughs> doesn't only wear one hat but many hats. Senator Kennedy, Senator Thurmond talked about this person as the major symbol of justice in the United States. More than that, this person has enormous power over the administration of justice in the United States. In addition to being the head of the United States Supreme Court, this person is the CEO, the chief executive officer of the entire federal judicial system. 1,200 life-tenured judges, a budget of more than $4 billion, a staff of more than 30,000, working in 750 courthouses around the United States, hearing hundreds of thousands of cases every year for all of us. The chief is the head of the policy-making body for the federal judiciary. The chief picks about 50 judges who sit on specialized courts, dealing from foreign surveillance to product liability. The chief picks 250 people to serve on the committees that make the rules that we all litigate by in the federal system. The chief sets the agenda for the federal courts through its annual State of the Judiciary address. Now, this repertoire of powers is startling and actually anomalous out of sync for a democracy. Unlike what judges do in court, working openly, giving decisions, accountable, transparent, the administrative powers are not easily seen, probably not even known to lots of people. 
further, unlike most administrators, the chief owes has that power, at least under current practices, for life. The president has term limits. You all have to run. Even administrators move on. Not so under current practice. Now, this package of power is not constitutionally mandated. The Constitution only mentions the chief once, and it's in terms of the impeachment of the president. So it, given that this is the rare occasion upon which we think about the chief justice, I would be remiss not to mention that there's a chance that we could rethink the issue of the chief justice rotating four, five-year, six-year terms. Quick recap. Point one, an opportunity to reflect on American values, take our constitutional temperature. Point two, an extraordinary appointment, an extraordinary appointment the unique roles of the chief. Point three, therefore, this is the occasion to figure out what the qualifications and requirements for the chief are, which gets me to my answer, point four. The chief justice of the United States should be the chief advocate for justice in the United States, should be the person insistent on access to the courts, clear that courts are vital. The chief justice should be committed to an independent and vibrant branch of government called the third branch. The chief justice should come here telling you, the Congress, that it needs more resources, needs more access, should be the guardian at the gate of justice. We need the chief to be sure that the president, the executive, respects the independence of adjudication and that the Congress does as well. Most important, we need a chief justice who understands that law has to be a source of strength for those who don't have it, who need it, not only a source of strength for those who already have the resources who can already get easily into court. Those are the litmus tests of where we can all be proud. My fifth and final point. What does the nominee's record tell us thus far? I've reviewed only written materials from 81 to 86 when he was a policy-making lawyer and signing them in his own name, only uh, on the D.C. Circuit, only published essays and transcripts, nothing from the SG's office, nothing from private practice, because we can't know what his own personal views are. I regret, your, I regret to report that at least as of this set of materials, Judge Roberts has not expressed an affirmative vision of deep enthusiasm for the role of courts for adjudication for the needs that courts fill for ordinary Americans. When given the opportunity to argue for courts for their accessibility, when given the opportunity to argue the Department of Justice should lend its hand to the needy Americans in need of more resources, when given the opportunity to interpret statutes to let us into court, that in general the nominee has argued against the use of courts. There have been some shorthand in this hearings for some of those decisions. I feel obliged to mention at least one other. There's a case called Booker, which is about a problem all of us face, where the courthouse door is closing on us because we have cell phones and credit cards that mandate we go to arbitration. There's an equal access to justice case. There are several others. There are many instances in the record in which at least thus far the nominee has not... I'm just closing right. right now. What we're looking for in the Chief Justice is a person who will celebrate courts and the role they play in a vital, economically stable democracy. And that is the question before the Senate. Is this person's record the one to commend this person for that job? Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Professor Resnick. Our next witness is Professor Christopher Yu, professor at Vanderbilt University Law School, a distinguished academic record, a graduate of Harvard, MBA at the Anderson School at UCLA Northwestern Law School, uh, clerk for uh, Justice uh, Kennedy, and uh, practice with uh, Hogan and Hartson. Thank you very much uh, for coming in, Professor Yu, and the floor is yours, five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. 
members of the committee. It is an honor to be here to testify in support of John Roberts' nomination as Chief Justice of the United States. I've had the chance to observe Judge Roberts from three different vantage points. First, as an associate working in the appellate group of Hogan and Hartson. Second, as a law clerk watching Judge Rogers, Roberts argue before the Supreme Court of the United States. And third, as a member of the faculty of the Vanderbilt University Law School reading his judicial opinions. Because there are many other colleagues here in a position to testify to his excellence as an appellate advocate and to his performance on the Court of Appeals, I will focus my remarks on the time Judge Roberts and I spent at Hogan and Hartson. I'm sure Senator Biden will be gratified to hear that during his time at Hogan and Hartson, John Roberts demonstrated to me an open-mindedness and ability to bring people together that would serve him well as Chief Justice. He also treated everyone around him with respect and decency. I had the chance to witness these qualities firsthand in the support and compassion that he showed to me when a tragedy struck my family. Judge Roberts' open-mindedness is evident in his decision to join Hogan and Hartson when leaving the White House Counsel's Office in 1986. Hogan has long prided itself on its ability to embrace attorneys from across the political spectrum. To cite just two prominent examples, its ranks include former uh, House Minority Leader Bob Michael and such leading Democrats as uh, former Chairman of the House Subcommittee of Health and the Environment Paul Rogers. It is also a firm that takes seriously the bar's obligation to provide free legal services to public interest organizations and to individuals who are unable to afford them. Judge Roberts was exceptionally well-liked throughout the firm. His regular lunch partners reflected the underlying diversity of the firm itself. Even more telling is his decision to return to Hogan after his successful stint as Principal Deputy Solicitor General. At a time when firms were lining up for the chance to hire him, including firms that attract those who wish to surround themselves with like-minded colleagues, Judge Roberts preferred to return to a more balanced and politically diverse environment. Judge Roberts' open-mindedness can also be seen in the manner in which he developed Hogan's appellate practice. Although the practice group was never large, the attorneys he hired reflected the diversity of the entire firm. Indeed, I suspect that he takes considerable pride in the fact that nearly half of the associates brought into the appellate group under his leadership were women, and that the women with whom he worked most closely on Supreme Court and appellate matters are now partners in the appellate group. He also represented a broad range of clients with diverse and even conflicting ideologies without requiring that every client's position match his own personal views. His reputation for fairness and willingness to engage all viewpoints were so well established that Democratic attorney generals and governors did not hesitate to hire him to represent their interests. In the process, he successfully advocated positions on behalf of clients on environmental protection and race-conscious remedies that did not match what many might regard as the standard conservative position on those issues. The pattern of fairness and open-mindedness that is apparent in his professional decisions is consistent with my own experiences working with Judge Roberts. He brought the same probing intellect and rigorous professionalism to every aspect of each case, searching through every possible viewpoint in the process of deciding how best to approach it. Simply put, Judge Roberts' tenure at Hogan and Hartson suggests a person who is fair and who is willing to engage and consider all points of view before making up his mind. 
My other memory of Judge Roberts from our time together at Hogan is the respect with which he treated everyone around him, from senior partners to secretaries and paralegals to law students who were only working at the firm for a summer. He was always supportive and encouraging, even while holding us to the highest professional standards. He also never forgot the personal side of the people who worked for him. I had the chance to see this aspect of Judge Roberts' character firsthand shortly after I rejoined the firm after my Supreme Court clerkship. I was working full bore on a slate of cases. My father-in-law had just arrived in the D.C. area to celebrate the recent birth of my second son, Brendan. Shortly after my father-in-law arrived, he was admitted to the intensive care unit of Arlington Hospital. After a three-and-a-half-month battle for his life, he eventually died. Judge Roberts reacted the way we wished everyone would. The minute he found out about my father-in-law's illness, he offered his sympathy and support. He rearranged my assignments to make it possible for me to make my family my first priority. He often checked in on me, always with a thoughtful gesture and a kind word. And when my father-in-law passed away, he released me from all of my assignments on a moment's notice, placed me on paid leave of absence so I could take care of my family when it needed me, even though I was facing a number of deadlines, and doing so would mean taking on considerable work himself. When I returned, he welcomed me back with open arms, without a single word about the problems caused by the abruptness of my departure. For John Roberts, it was all very simple. It was just the right thing to do. At the same time, Judge Roberts has a humility that is somewhat surprising in someone so accomplished. Tessa, you, would you please uh, summarize at this point? In short, I am convinced that John Roberts possesses the open-mindedness, compassion, and humility that the Senate seeks in the members of our nation's highest courts highest court. He combines these qualities with the respect for the law and for the Supreme Court as an institution that leave no doubt in my mind that he would make an admirable Chief Justice. Thank, Thank you. you, Professor. That's a good transition to ask you to summarize, to go right to and quote in short, unquote. Our next witness and final on this panel is Professor David Strauss. An extraordinary academic background, uh, a member of the magna cum laude Harvard Law School Club, not too many of you. Judge Roberts is uh, one. Uh, uh, two years at uh, Oxford, uh, uh, advisor, attorney advisor in the Carter Justice Department. Uh, worked on the Judiciary Committee here, a special counsel during the uh, Justice Souter nomination proceedings, and uh, has been at the uh, University of Chicago for some time, 18 cases before the Supreme Court. You're on, uh, Professor Strauss. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Uh, it's an honor to appear before you. My purpose here is really not to pass judgment on John Roberts, someone I admire very much in many ways, but rather to speak about a development in the subject I teach and study, constitutional law something that's happened in that area in the last generation that is very significant and directly relevant to this hearing and to the judicial appointments process generally. And that, that development is a change in the nature of judicial conservatism. You can see the change if you look at what President Nixon said when he appointed Justice Rehnquist and what President Bush, who of course has nominated Justice Rehnquist's successor, has said. President Nixon said he wanted to appoint a judicial conservative, and he identified his model. His model was Justice Harlan. President Bush, of course, has identified his models, and his models are Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas. 
all of these people are judicial conservatives, but there is a world of difference between the two different kinds of conservatism. The hallmarks of Justice Harlan's work were deference to Congress and respect for precedent. The hallmarks of the new conservatism is something close to the opposite of that, a skeptical attitude toward the work of Congress and a willingness to overturn precedent. And, and it is really that difference, not the difference between liberals and conservatives, but the difference between these two different kinds of conservatism that make the stakes in the judicial appointments process very high at this point in our history. I identified a number of areas in my written remarks where I think the stakes are high. Let me just mention two here. The first is Congress's power to address the problems facing the American people and to protect the rights of the American people. I think it is fair to say that the power of Congress to do those things is under challenge in the judiciary today in a way it has not been since before the Great Depression. And this is true not just in the case of the now famous toad, but in area after area, and many of which the hearings have discussed, in the, in the, in the area of environmental protection, workplace safety, consumer protection, campaign finance, the rights of the disabled, as we heard, the free exercise of religion, age discrimination, gender discrimination, the protection of intellectual property rights. In all of those areas, there are significant efforts underway in the judiciary to limit in important ways the power of Congress to do what it has been doing now for the better part of a century protecting the need, protecting the rights, and serving the needs of the American people. The other area is, of course, the right of privacy. The right of privacy, the modern right of privacy, was essentially an invention of Justice Harlan, the judicial conservative that President Nixon cited as a model when he appointed Justice Rehnquist. It was the opinion Justice Harlan wrote that was the font of privacy law that was extended not just in the case of abortion, but in many other areas, not just in the case of reproductive rights, but in many other areas today. Justice Harlan took a view of privacy that rested on a generous and expansive reading of American traditions. He did not ex ex expect people claiming rights to point to some specific tradition or some specific body of law. He understood that the questions were more difficult than that. The right of privacy now, if, if anything, is more important, indeed much more important, than it was when Justice Harlan wrote, with changes in reproductive technology and end-of-life technologies that make these questions all the more acute. And the question whether we will have a Justice Harlan-like approach to the right of privacy or a skeptical approach to the right of privacy that questions whether it even exists and evinces a desire to confine it as narrowly as possible. That question, it seems to me, is very much on the table and will be a question that will be with us for the next generation. I don't want to be alarmist about this. this the law doesn't change overnight. These are not changes that will occur, maybe not even with this appointment. But there are points in the history of the Supreme Court. The New Deal was one. The Civil Rights Revolution was one. There are points in the history of the Supreme Court where the court rethinks and redefines its relationship to the other branches of government and its relationship to the rights of individuals. We may be at such a point. There are indications that we are at such a point. We have not passed it yet. But the next few appointments to the Supreme Court will determine whether this is an era in which the Supreme Court redefines its relationship in a way that is basically unknown.
to Americans living today. Those are the stakes um, uh, presented by this appointment and by other appointments that this committee will face. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Strauss, for uh, those profound comments. Uh, this is an extraordinary panel which uh, could yield a lot of fruits with a lot of questioning, except that we have six more witnesses and it's almost six o'clock. I'm going to start by uh, yielding to uh, Senator Feinstein. I have no questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm glad I yielded to you, Senator Feinstein. <laughs> Senator Sessions. Uh, Mr. Freed, it's an honor to have you with us. I, I was uh, as a member of the Department of Justice when you served as Solicitor General and you represent uh, uh, the best in American law, and I'm pleased to see you at Harvard and teaching students uh, what American law is all about. Uh, I noticed that the uh, uh, legal publications have uh, declared that uh, Judge Roberts may be one of may uh, is the premier appellate court practitioner in America in a generation. Uh, you've argued before the Supreme Court. I, I don't think your personal friends with Judge Roberts, but from your observations, uh, how do you rank him as a scholar and as a practitioner uh, in the Supreme Court? As a practitioner, he's the best. Uh, as a scholar, he doesn't exist. He doesn't purport to be a scholar. He hasn't written scholarly articles. That's not his business. And in that respect, he is very much like some of the greats. Uh, Earl Warren, had, was not a scholar when he went on the court uh, and writ had written no articles. Henry Friendly wrote all his articles after he became a judge. Similarly, I think, with Benjamin Nathan Cardozo. Uh, so it does not denigrate uh, Judge Roberts to say scholar, scholarly is not what he has done. Perhaps he shall, but he hasn't so far. And uh, with regard to his service on the court and his express philosophy of uh, being a neutral umpire, one who uh, uh, decides the case before the court and uh, not one to impose any personal or political views through his opinions. Is that consistent in your opinion with the classical American tradition of law? It's the best tradition, your uh, Senator, the very best tradition. Would you agree with one witness at our hearing who said, if you believe and cherish your liberties, your liberties are much safer with a judge who shows restraint than one who is an activist? Well, I have never understood what that restraint activist contrast is meant to show. Uh, but I think my liberties are safest with a judge who will listen to the facts of my case will listen to my lawyer's arguments and will decide on the basis of them rather than a judge who comes in with an agenda or with a predisposition or perhaps even with a philosophy. And if they're faithful to the Constitution, in the long run, our liberties are protected in that fashion also, are they not? The law is our greatest protection, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your service to your country and, and, and you uh, sharing these thoughts with us today. <clears throat> Thank you, Senator Sessions. Well, now that we've saved so much time, I'm going to take a few minutes on a question or two. Professor Resnick, you advanced a fascinating suggestion that uh, 
the Chief Justice's position might uh, be rotated, uh, suggest that by an act of Congress? Um, there are many different you possibilities. You would expect them to make a deal among themselves. <laughs> well, actually, because the, uh, act, the role of the Chief Justice is a mixture of about dozens of statutes from this Congress episodically enacted and many customs, it would be possible for the court to develop a custom that would alter the allocation of authority. How about an act of Congress? That's something we can do something about. The, uh, we don't seem to have too much influence on the court, even with our confirmation process. Uh, Congress has... Because I've once confirmed, we never hear from them. They never call, they never write. <laughs> <laughs> can Congress pass an act to rotate the Chief Justice job? In my view and reading of the Constitution, yes, Congress has the authority to decide that the Chief Justiceship is a position that could be inhabited by one member of the court for a certain period of time and then by another. In Would addition, that be reviewable by the court? Well, we believe that every statute can be considered for its constitutionality. So, of course, the court could consider it, and then the question would be... They wouldn't have a conflict of interest? Well, the court has actually developed a rule called the rule of necessity, which is to say that it says when everyone's disqualified, then no one's disqualified. Um, there is actually a, a Supreme Court in Texas old decision in the 1920s that says when everyone's disqualified, we've got to go find an extra ad hoc court for a moment. So there are differences depending on the state or federal system. But right now, the court would... It's, in fact, as you know, the court has considered challenges that say that you have unfairly diminished their salary under Article 3, and the court has said we have to sit on those cases because here we are and have decided sometimes yes and sometimes no under the Article 3 guarantee of no diminution of salary. Have we been successful in diminishing their salary? Uh, according to the court, you have. there have been a couple instances so of... So we have a formula statutes. where we can do that constitutionally? You, ha you have, in your... In your hat, as members of Congress, you can pass statutes that the court then reviews. You may not diminish their salary, but the close questions come up on things like if you are prospectively altering COLAs, cost of living increases, or you're changing the benefits or annuities. Those are the kinds of instances that come up. There have been a few class actions by some judges uh, who are doing that, and as you know, the Chief Justice of the United States was here. Uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was a wonderful advocate, greatly concerned about Professor the Professor Rehnquist, I want to stay course. within five minutes, so I want to Certainly. move on, if I may. Uh, Professor Strauss, uh, you gave a fascinating analysis, uh, but you didn't tell us whether you're for or against Judge Roberts. Do you care to do that? Um, actually, as a Senator, with all respect, I don't. I mean, I... I uh, There's been another witness here who didn't answer questions. You have... <laughs> I, I, I can't say this will come before me in another capacity, so I don't want to. I don't want to prejudge it. Um, I, I don't. Um, I don't want to. I, I, my expertise is in constitutional law. I feel comfortable talking about that. I don't want to claim the sort of familiarity with Judge Roberts' record. I haven't had the conversations with him the members of the committee have had, and I don't think. Uh, I don't think it would serve a purpose to take sides. I respect that, uh, uh, Professor Freed. Uh, uh, I had read and wanted it confirmed and. I sent my chief counsel to confirm it that you had written on the subject of Roe versus Wade that you thought it was uh, wrongly decided, uh, but that it would not be reversed. Uh, did you take a position on whether it should be reversed, as well as uh, the two propositions I articulated? Because it wouldn't be inconsistent to think it was wrongly decided and think that having lasted so long that it ought to stay. 
Uh, I think it won't be reversed, and I don't think it should be reversed. Not only has it become... Even though you're, you were against the decision. It was wrongly decided initially, as not only I, but Archibald Cox, Paul Freund, and Dean Ely thought. But it has become, as you say, a super precedent. And not only has it become... Only super with 38 chances to reverse super it? Super duper, if you wish. Uh, oh, I do. Thank then, you very much. That's the first authentication I've It's not had. only that it has been reaffirmed as to abortion, but that it has ramified, it has struck roots. So it has been cited and used in the Lawrence case, the homosexual sodomy case, in some of the opinions in the right to die cases, in the Troxel case, which is uh, the grandparent visiting right case. So it's not only that it's there and it's a big tree, but it has it has ramified and, and exfoliated, and it would be an enormous disruption. That's what? Expo so you not only get branches, you get leaves. Exfoliate. It's done I just all didn't. of that. And that oh, I, know, I know what exfoliate means. I just didn't hear you. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, and since I don't know Judge Roberts, except most casually, and I certainly have never discussed it, if you want a prediction from me, I would predict that he would never vote, not never, but he would not vote to overrule it for the reasons that I've given. Well, that's uh, a topic of uh, extensive discussion in the cloakrooms, the Senate, and on the Senate floor and in the hallways. Senator Feinstein and I are talking about it, whether he would or would not, and uh, there are clues, but, uh, but no certainty. Well, I'm past time. I'd really like to engage in some more uh, discussion, but uh, I have duties to uh, proceed. Senator DeWine has joined us. I'm confident this will be a no-question response, but uh, I'll ask for questions. Senator? Very, very short. Uh, Professor Resnick, I know you had some comments about the Chief Justice, and you had an exchange with the Chairman in regard to the rotation of the Chief Justice. Uh, just kind of a general question. Are you troubled in any way by the growing uh, authority of the Chief Justice, or do you want to comment about uh, that? Yes, and um, I write about the federal courts, yeah, and I have raised concerns about this because I think that this is too large a charter. Some of it, coming back to the Senate, has the Congress has given in several statutes direct authority to the Chief Justice to appoint other from life tenure judges, judges to sit on courts. That does not have to be the way that judges are assigned. They could, for example, be assigned to specialized courts by taking all of the judges on the courts of appeals through some random rotation. So there are, and there's a... Fife Court, for example, is so appointed by the There's a, 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 a colleague, another law professor named Theodore Ruger at the University of Pennsylvania who's analyzed the appointments on that court and has a law review article detailing it. He actually reports that um, the Chief Justice has, uh, he's the one who has the count of about 50 appointments of other judges to specialized panels or courts. The Congress also could, for example, the Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the major policy-making body, that could be chaired by, again, a rotating group of Court of Appeals judges. The many committees that are being appointed, uh, many other judiciaries around the world are, tr are dealing with this question. How do we provide all the justice we need to for all of our citizens, have it organized, be sure that there's a voice that comes to tell the world about its needs, and then not develop a kind of bureaucracy that means that people are, that, um, that judges are losing their role as adjudicators as they seek
to set agendas and set future agendas. And it's a hard problem that everyone is facing because we need lots of judges. So if you go back at the turn of the century, 1900s, fewer than 100 judges around the United States, life tenured. Fast forward, between magistrate and bankruptcy judges, we've got 2,000. They need organization, they need equipment, they need staffs. They need all these things, but at the same time, we also need to cherish the role of open, visible, accessible courts. And that's the challenge, and I think that the Congress and the courts could work together, as they have over the last century, to create this great system in rethinking the allocation of authority. Very helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator Wine. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been a very enlightening panel. Lots of uh, brain power. Six professors in a row. Uh, it's uh, a tribute even to this uh, hallowed room. Thank you. On to uh, panel six. Uh, uh, Ms. Diana Pergott-Roth from the Hudson Institute, Secretary Rice, Rabbi Polakoff, et cetera. If you all take your seats. Our first witness is uh, Ms. Diana Pergott-Roth, Senior Fellow and Director of the Hudson Centers for Employment Policy had been the chief economist at the Department of Labor, previously served as chief of staff of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, and two years as deputy executive director of Domestic Policy Council, a bachelor of arts in economics from Swarthmore, and a master's uh, from Oxford. Thank you for joining us, uh, uh, Ms. Pruckout-Roth, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you very much. Is this going to be a power presentation? No, no, it isn't. Uh, Mr. PowerPoint Chairman, thank you very Mr. Chairman, members yours. of the committee, I'm honored to be invited to testify before your committee today on the subject of Judge John Roberts and his record on women's economic issues. I've followed and written about these issues for many years. And with your permission, I'd like to submit my written testimony for the record. Without objection, it will be made a part of the record in full. Some observers are concerned about Judge Roberts' attitudes towards women. I believe his record is supportive of women and that the policies he advocated are in women's best interests. Women made extraordinary progress during Ronald Reagan's presidency. President Reagan's goals of spurring growth by lowering taxes were extremely popular. After Congress enacted his tax cuts during his first term, he was re-elected re in 1984 with over 60% of the vote. Congress then enacted further tax cuts proposed by President Reagan, and by the end of his presidency, the tax rates for the median family had fallen from 24 to 15%. As taxes were reduced, the economy expanded, and women were some of the main beneficiaries of that economic growth. In the 1980s, women moved rapidly into the workforce. At the same time, their unemployment rates fell. Women's earnings compared to men's grew faster in the 1980s under President Reagan than in any other decade in U.S. history. Women also progressed in education in the 1980s. By 1990, women were earning over half of all BA and MA degrees. That's still true today. More women got MBA and law degrees, and more became doctors and lawyers. Now the United States leads the industrialized world in job creation, and unemployment rates at 4.9% are among the lowest. Unemployment rates for women in many other countries are double our rate. 
Even though women were so successful in the 1980s, some are concerned about Judge Roberts' views on comparable worth. Some believe that if comparable worth had been implemented, women would have made even more progress. But that concern is misguided. Comparable worth doesn't mean equal pay for equal worth, uh, work, which is already the law, and which is the principle that President Reagan and Judge Roberts supported. Instead, comparable worth means equal pay for entirely different categories of jobs, based on categories of workers determined by government officials. Comparable worth supporters claim that it's unfair that some mostly male occupations, such as sewer workers, are paid more than some mostly female occupations, such as clerical specialists. But for better or for worse, our economic system rewards American workers on the basis of how much the public values their service and is actually willing to pay for their services, not based on how much an official says that it's worth. Some jobs have higher earnings than others because people are willing to pay more for them. Many jobs are dirty and dangerous, such as oil drilling, construction work, mining and roofing. These jobs are primarily performed by men. Women aren't excluded from these jobs, but they often choose careers with a more pleasant environment and potentially more flexible schedules, such as teaching, communications and office work. Many of these jobs pay less. Proponents of comparable worth cite an example in Oregon. There, female clerical specialists were given raises of over $7,000 a year to bring them in line with male senior sewer workers. Everyone, given a choice of working in an office or a sewer at the same salary, would choose the office. You just have to pay people more for work in, uh, about and in sewers. Women's progress in the 1980s would have been hampered by comparable worth. Comparable worth would have worked against women because artificially high wages would have prevented them from being hired. When wages get too high, employers cut back on numbers of workers. Comparable worth assumes that women cannot ever succeed in certain fields on their own that need government assistance. Some observers have criticized Judge Roberts because they disagree with memoranda he wrote on Title IX and college athletics in the early 1980s. In particular, Judge Roberts wrote in 1982 that Title IX only applied to specific programs receiving federal aid and not to all programs in a particular educational institution. But that was what Title IX required at the time, as corroborated by the Supreme Court in 1984. The Supreme Court ruled that only the program that actually received federal funds, rather than the entire college or university, need comply with Title IX. As I wrote in a book in 2001, the 6-3 opinion effectively prevented the Office of Civil Rights of the Department of Education from investigating a college athletic department for Title IX violations unless that department was the direct recipient of federal funds, which most were not. In writing about Title IX, Judge Roberts argued persuasively that the executive branch and regulatory agencies should comply with Congress's direction. He correctly wrote in a 1982 memo... Sir, could you uh, summarize your testimony at this point? Yes, yes. I will uh, summarize my testimony by saying that Congress changed the law in 1987 by passing the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987 and that Judge Roberts's uh, comments on Title IX, uh, if the law had been in place in 1982, his comments would have been very, very different. And in short, I'd like to say that wage discrimination uh, laws and uh, Title IX guidelines aren't a decision for judges but for members of Congress. 
It's members of Congress who decide on the laws and give the executive branch the authority to design and implement these regulations. Therefore, it would be up to you, Senators, to evaluate the costs and the benefits of the issues. And should he be confirmed as Chief Justice, Judge Roberts' role would be to interpret the laws and adjudicate disputes containing the laws that you were going to pass. Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, our next witness is uh, uh, Professor uh, Robert Reich. I had been a professor of social and economic policy at Brandeis until he recently joined the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California. He served as Secretary of Labor during President Clinton's first uh, administration. I subsequently published a book entitled Locked in the Cabinet. Uh, before taking office uh, during the Clinton administration, was a member of the faculty of Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. BA from Dartmouth, Masters from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar with uh, President Clinton and a law degree from the Yale Law School. Uh, I'm pleased to see you again, uh, Professor Rice. I have some questions left over which you didn't answer when I <laughs> questioned you when you were Secretary of Health and Human Services, which we will Labor. get to promptly. That's because I was Secretary of Labor, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> Uh, Mr. Chairman and uh, members of the no committee. Wonder, no wonder I couldn't understand what you were doing. <laughs> uh, I have prepared testimony, and with your permission, I'll submit it for the record. Uh, there's been much discussion in these hearings about social values. And I want to put on the table uh, something that uh, maybe has not received quite the attention it should, and that is economic values. And I don't think I have to tell the committee what almost everybody knows, and that is that wealth and income and the power that come from wealth and income are more concentrated in fewer hands as a proportion of the population today than we've seen since the 1920s, and by some measures since the gilded age of the 1890s. Now, if this doesn't present issues of economic morality, I don't know what does. And it comes to the fore with regard to Congress and the Supreme Court in a whole series of protections, some of them very old, some of them going back to the 1920s and 30s and 40s, having to do with workplace protections, unemployment insurance, interpretations of Social Security, interpretations of minimum wage, the ways in which we treat our working people in this country. Now, I heard Judge Roberts at least to the best of my memory, in the last couple of days, tell this committee that he would rule on the side of the little guy when the Constitution told him to, and he'd rule on the side of the big guy when the Constitution was on the side of the big guy. Now, I assume that he's talking about little guy and big guy in figurative terms, in terms of economic power and wealth and status in society. But last time I looked at my Constitution, it doesn't say anything about average working people or big guys or little guys at all. In fact, there have been times in our history where the Supreme Court came down consistently on the side of wealth and power and against little guys, against average working people. Up until 1937, for example, the Supreme Court threw out a lot of state and federal regulation that was intended to help average working people. Judge Roberts has a record, it's not much of a record, something of a, of a gamble for all of us, 
But let me reveal a little bit of autobiographical detail that perhaps uh, you didn't know, and I do this not to burnish my otherwise impeccable Republican credentials, but simply to tell you that I know something about a particular institution. I started out my life in government as assistant to the Solicitor General, where I had a chance to brief and argue Supreme Court cases. And my first boss was Robert Bork. Now in those days, the Solicitor General's office regarded its primary client as the Supreme Court, not the administration. It wasn't until the mid-1980s that there was a new position created in the Solicitor General's office called the Special Deputy. It was a political position, it was a political deputy, and it was about values. That political deputy was there for a very simple reason, to make sure that the Solicitor General's office and the briefs and arguments before the Supreme Court were in consistency, were consistent with the values of the president in terms of social values, economic values, whatever have you. I've read Justice Judge Roberts' memoranda, and there's no question in my mind, having had that experience in the Solicitor General's office, that he came down consistently, uniformly, on the side of very conservative economic and social values. I'm not criticizing him for it, but I think it's very important that you know that. Here, in this hearing, he said, for example, he refused to affirm Wickard against Fillmore. Now, you know as well as I do, over the last 10 years, more than 30 times, the Supreme Court has struck down, either in whole or in part, laws of this Congress. Ten of those, at least, have been based on the Commerce Clause. Record against Philborn, in my knowledge, in my experience, is a cornerstone of building the protections of a strong federal government for average working people. His refusal to affirm that, I find, personally quite troubling. There's been reference also to the hapless toad. Well, we know that he was looking for other ways, perhaps, to find that Endangered Species Act constitutional. But look at that logic in that particular case. When he says Congress didn't really have authority under the Commerce Clause to protect the life of a hapless toad that, for reasons of its own, lives its entire life in California. Well, obviously, people are not toads, I, at least the last time I looked. But what about protecting the job safety of a hapless retail worker who, for reasons of her own, lives her, ent her entire life in Pennsylvania, or a hapless coal miner who, for reasons of his own, lives his entire life in West Virginia. Let me just finally say this. One justice can make all the difference to our entire system, system of federal protections. One justice. The court did change its mind in 1937, as I said before, and it stopped striking down laws that protected people, average working people, not because, as popularly understood, FDR threatened to pack the court. No. In fact, the court made that switch before it even knew that FDR had a court-packing scheme. Professor Rice, could you, could you summarize your testimony at this point? I will do it in one sentence. The justice who made that switch was Justice Roberts. Justice Owen Roberts. And it would be a cruel joke of history 
if a namesake almost 60 years later turned the court backward. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Reich. Our next witness is Rabbi Dale Polikoff, president of the Rabbinical Council of America, whose membership uh, consists of more than 1,000 ordained rabbis. He serves as rabbi of Great Neck Synagogue, Long Island, faculty member of the North Shore Hebrew Academy, graduate of Yeshiva, where he majored in psychology. Thank you very much for joining us today, Rabbi, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and other distinguished members of the committee. Uh, good afternoon, or perhaps good evening. Uh, thank you for inviting me to participate in these hearings. Rabbinical Council of America includes congregational rabbis, teachers and academicians, military chaplains, some of whom serve today in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other areas of the world, healthcare chaplains, organizational professionals, and others. I am here this afternoon to offer a statement of support for the nomination of Judge John G. Roberts to be Chief Justice of the United States. My remarks about Judge Roberts begin this afternoon with broad brushstrokes because the desired qualities of judges within the Jewish tradition are defined in just such broad brush strokes. We are enjoined to choose principled judges who refrain from showing favoritism to individuals or causes. We seek judges who are people of truth, whose words and decisions inspire confidence in those who rely upon them. Our tradition recognizes the tremendous responsibility borne by those who judge others and sees in their dispensing of truth and justice a divine partnership ensuring the continuation of a moral society. At a time in which many in our society seek moral moorings and spiritual strength, I am certain that these broad values are also the values embraced by this great country in which we are privileged to live. Values of principle, values of truth, and values of responsibility are part of the foundation of religious ethics upon which our nation has been built. And I am confident that Judge Roberts represents the embodiment of such values. Within these broad brush strokes, though, are many hues of color. And it is the responsibility of this Judiciary Committee to try to determine how Judge Roberts sees those colors. As the representative of the clergy of a minority faith community, I and my colleagues are also interested in an area of seminal importance to us, namely the relationship between religion and state in society. In an effort to gain insight into Judge Roberts' understanding of that relationship, as defined by the Free Exercise and Establishment Clauses of the First Amendment, we were encouraged by a memorandum written to Counsel Fred Fielding on August 20, 1984 regarding remarks to be made by President Reagan to an ecumenical prayer breakfast. Then Council Roberts suggested that the references to church or churches be changed to references to religion or religions. He noted that, and I quote, many of our citizens do not worship in churches, but in temples and mosques, end quote. We believe that this comment demonstrates a sensitivity and appreciation for the diversity of religious faith in America, and we hope is a harbinger of Judge Roberts' view in this crucial area. 
There are those who suggest that Mr. Roberts' subsequent participation in presenting the view of the United States in several religion clauses should, cases should be of concern. In this matter, matter, we rely on the guidance of the Institute of Public Affairs of the Union of Orthodox Jewish Congregations of America, a sister nonpartisan religious organization. Their research indicates that in each of the cases, the positions advocated by the United States were neither extreme nor even unreasonable interpretations of the religion clause's requirements. As members of this committee are well aware, the contours of religious liberty in this nation are still being shaped by the Supreme Court. Should the Senate confirm Judge Roberts, he will be on the court this term, when in the case of Gonzalez v. Ocentro Esperita, it will again examine the extent to which minority religions will have their religious liberty protected against government interference and Congress's ability to protect that liberty through laws like the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which many of you championed a decade ago. While we cannot be certain, we are optimistic that a Justice Roberts will be supportive and solicitous of religious liberty in America. His answers this week to questions you and your colleagues have asked him about the Constitution's religion clauses were indeed reassuring. The Rabbinical Council of America has taken this public position of support for the nomination of Judge Roberts in the spirit of this year's celebration of 350 years of American Jewish history. The Jewish community, like so many other faith communities, has greatly benefited from the religious liberty guaranteed by our Constitution. We have been able to build houses of worship and study and to create communities reflective of our values and traditions. We believe it thus appropriate through our active participation in this process that we acknowledge our debt of gratitude to America, to a nation that has pledged to uphold the conviction that liberty and equal justice under law are for all. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Our next witness is Dr. Susan Thistlewade, president of the Chicago Theological Seminary. A PhD from Duke University, Masters of Divinity, summa cum laude. Undergraduate degree from Smith, the author of several books uh, and uh, op-ed pieces in various newspapers. Thank you for joining us, uh, Dr. Thistlewaite, and uh, we look forward to your testimony. Thank you, Chairman Spector and members of the committee. My name is Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite. I'm president and professor of theology at Chicago Theological Seminary. My academic training is in historical theology. My teaching and writing have emphasized contemporary religious life with particular attention to religion and social justice. It's an honor to be asked to give testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and with your permission, I will submit it for the record. Our Constitution's promises such as the right to live free of tyranny and be able to worship freely, are generous, even extravagant promises. They are promises made after freedom had been won from tyranny. A tyranny, both political and ecclesiastical. They are promises made to the best of the human spirit, as created by God. In the limited documents available to discern John Roberts' views, there is evidence, and I have cited detail in my written testimony, that his judicial posture is more toward permissiveness in religious establishment and is less than vigorous in the defense of religious minorities and their freedoms. 
He refers to the so-called right to privacy, has objected to affirmative action, but has favored expanding both the authority of law enforcement and presidential authority. Very disturbing to me is the view, and I quote, the Geneva Convention is unenforceable in U.S. courts and in any case does not apply to detainees labeled enemy combatants. I submit to you the threat to the moral health of the nation of this view is extremely grave. A Supreme Court justice entrusted to interpret the Constitution must embrace the fundamental element of our democracy. We will strive to be a body politic rooted in justice and fairness for all citizens. A justice trusted to interpret the Constitution must understand that the protection of the free exercise of religion and the prohibition of any establishment of religion are particularly critical to the way in which this Constitution promises to establish justice. Few Americans have understood the promises inherent in our Constitution better than Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King, in his I Have a Dream speech, was able, as few before or since, to reach into our constitutional past and proclaim the deep sense of the words that the Constitution was a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. King argued that so far this promissory note to African Americans had been returned in sufficient funds. But the promise held. The promise for King was a dream, but not a fantasy. Dr. King's vision, as is well known, was a deeply theological vision. It is perhaps less <coughs> well known that the framers of the Constitution also drew on a theological vision and that their prohibition of the establishment of any religion and their insistence on the protection of the free exercise of religion was made for religious reasons. The thought of John Locke, on whose work the founding fathers, <coughs> such as Thomas Jefferson, drew, is instructive. Locke, like others in the 17th century, had seen the terrible results of religious wars as Catholics and Protestants struggled for power in England. His own faith finally led him to believe that it is only in the absolute protection of human civil society from any control by religious authorities that people are enabled to come to have faith in God. It was a, for a theological reason, not a secular one, that both Locke and Thomas Jefferson separated church and state and prohibited establishing one religion over any other. In that way, they protected religious freedom. In Jefferson's A Bill for Establishing Religious Freedom, the plan of our holy author of our religion is not to propagate it by coercion. They made this simple point. God does not need the help of the state for there to be faith. From our vantage point in the 21st century, we can see the framers were right. They did not just protect political freedom, they protected religious freedom. It is no accident that the United States, through all of its history so far, has been free from the terrible effects of religious war. The framers of the Constitution what they were, knew what they were about. As retiring Justice Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in an opinion last term, those who would renegotiate the boundaries between church and state must therefore answer a difficult question. Why would we trade a system that has served us so well from one that has served us so poorly? What has become evident in the last half of the 20th century and into the 21st is that our society is becoming more genuinely religiously diverse. The Harvard Pluralism Project has documented that the United States is rapidly becoming the most religiously diverse nation in the world. Such increasing religious pluralism calls for even greater vigilance, both in protecting religious minorities and clearly avoiding even the appearance of the establishment of any particular religion. The Constitution is a document that seeks to implement a vision of fundamental human rights 
a vision of a society such as none in history had seen before, a vision that would establish justice, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty. I have been impressed with the incisive mind of John Roberts. That is a necessary but not a sufficient credential for Chief Justice. I am not as convinced that he believes in the dream that is the United States of America. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thistlewaite. Uh, we now turn to uh, Governor John Engler, president of the National Association of Manufacturers, the largest industry trade group and industrial industry trade group in the United States. Served as governor of Michigan for three terms, and before that, had extensive experience in the Michigan State Legislature. Chairman of the National Governors Association, a graduate of Michigan State and a law degree from the Cooley School of Law. Thank you for uh, coming in today, Governor Engler, and uh, the floor is yours. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Senator Lee, and distinguished members of this committee, I'm pleased to be here today to testify in support of the nomination of Judge John Roberts to the next Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. This is an important moment for the National Association of Manufacturers because it is the first time that we've participated in a proceeding of this type. I would like to take a minute just to explain why we've taken this historic step. When I joined the NAM on October 1st of last year, I did bring that experience you referenced, 20 years in the Michigan legislature, 12 years as governor of Michigan from 91 to 2003. During that time as governor, I found that Michigan businesses were facing crushing legal costs and barriers. I also learned and saw firsthand laws that I'd helped write in the state senator, signed as a governor, were in many instances ignored, rewritten, or set aside by judges unclear about or dismissive of their sworn duties. In part because of this, the legal environment for doing business in Michigan had become unpredictable, unfavorable, and unacceptable. So, Governor, I set out to change this by recruiting to the judiciary individuals who were committed to uphold the law and not legislate from the bench. During 12 years as a governor, I appointed more than 200 judges to the Michigan courts, and that included three state Supreme Court justices, each of whom has a record of faithfully interpreting and applying the law. Now, as a result of these appointments, coupled with equally needed and important tort reform legislation, cases filed in the Michigan Circuit Courts dropped by some 17% between 1997 and 2004 the legal cost of doing business in Michigan declined. The people of Michigan, through this debate and the period of time, came to understand that the certainty and predictability the judges help foster when they follow the law not only can lead to a better business climate, but necessarily then are a key to jobs and prosperity. The same can be true at the national level. Nationally, our legal system today consumes some 2.3% of GDP. Its cost is actually about seven and a half times as high as that of any of our key trading partners. The high cost of lawsuit abuse continues to be an impediment to our ability to compete in the global economy. Now, of course, much of this solution to this doesn't lie with the federal courts, but in state legislatures, in the Congress, which must write clear laws that recognize these realities. And that's why the NAM continues to advocate asbestos reform that's been the subject of much hard work by this very committee and further tort reform in areas like products liability. 
Now that said, to achieve a business environment that is fair and predictable, and where the rules are clearly spelled out and adhered to, it's essential to have judges who will apply the rules the legislature or the Congress establishes in a fair and predictable manner. The United States Supreme Court must set the example. The need for this fundamental fairness and predictability is why the NAM decided that the time had come to take positions on judicial nominations. After reviewing Judge John Roberts' record, we're convinced he's eminently qualified to lead the court. Judge Roberts has the intellect and the experience needed to understand and address complicated transactions and difficult legal problems. At the same time, he's committed to applying the law rather than applying his own personal views. This philosophy is essential if we are to remain a nation guided by the rule of law. Finally, John Roberts understands the importance of clarity when deciding cases and the practical consequence of decisions for business. I might add that really none of the current members of the court come from a, a recent private sector kind of background. Judge Roberts does. He brings that. Accordingly, if confirmed, Justice Roberts will add an important voice to the court's deliberations because of his strong experience of how litigation affects major commercial transactions. This background will allow the court and assist the court really in identifying cases that present business issues of national importance for its review and also in understanding the practical ramifications of rules set out through its decisions. As I close, let me make it clear that the NAM also didn't seek to determine if Judge Roberts will reach or is likely to reach a particular outcome favorable to business. The principal difficulty with an outcome-based approach is that the outcomes a justice should reach ought to depend on what the duly enacted law is. In many areas, different companies and businesses will disagree on what the pro-business result actually is. Therefore, the National Association of Manufacturers is not looking for a justice who's biased in favor of or against business, or whose decisions reflect or are likely to reflect a pro-business outlook, but rather for a justice who will properly and impartially apply the law. We're convinced Judge Roberts is such a justice and I respectfully urge this committee then set in a timely manner his nomination before the full Senate. Thank you, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Thank you very much, uh, Governor Engler. Our final witness is uh, Ms. Karen Pearl, interim president of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. For 10 years prior to becoming the interim president, she was the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Nassau County. Uh, she has been a preschool teacher working with children with disabilities and has a master's degree in counseling from New York University. Thank you for coming in today, Ms. Burrell, and the uh, floor is yours. Mr. Chairman and distinguished members of the committee, I am Karen Pearl, Interim President of Planned Parenthood Federation of America. I'm honored to be here today to express the concerns and hopes of our patients and America's pro-choice majority. I come before you not as an individual, but as a representative of millions. Through Planned Parenthood's 850 health centers, we provide health services to nearly 5 million women, men, and young people every year. One in four American women will visit a Planned Parenthood center in her lifetime. These women represent Americans from every walk of life and from every part of the country. What is at stake in these hearings is nothing less than women's lives and women's health. Americans deserve a Supreme Court that will protect 
not take away our basic freedoms. The record of John Roberts reveals a nominee who as Chief Justice is not likely to uphold constitutional protections for the right to choose abortion. And while we have fought hard for that right, and will fight just as hard to protect it, Planned Parenthood does everything in our power to reduce the need for abortion. Yet there are forces at work in this nation who seek to restrict comprehensive sex education, contraception, and emergency contraception, the very things that would decrease the number of abortions in this country. In his response to questions from some of the members of this committee, Judge Roberts has refused to state that he accepts and will protect a woman's constitutional right to choose, a right that has been part of the fabric of our society for nearly two generations. We ask that you oppose his nomination to the lifetime position of Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Five years ago, in Stenberg versus Carhart, four of the nine justices made it clear that they support either overturning Roe v. Wade or significantly gutting it. To do so would seriously threaten constitutional protections against government regulations that threaten women's health and safety. To do so would send us back to a pre-Roe era where women did not have an equal place at life's table and when making childbearing decisions was a perilous enterprise. The American people deserve a Chief Justice who will uphold Roe. And yet Judge Roberts co-authored a brief filed on behalf of the government in Rust v. Sullivan that stated Roe was wrongly decided and should be overruled. It is hard for me to understand, Senators, how a decision that for the past three decades has helped women participate equally in society could have been wrongly decided. It is hard for me to understand why a decision that allowed women to realize their dreams should be overruled. We at Planned Parenthood are faced with the prospect of violence and intimidation every day of our lives. My first day on the job at Planned Parenthood, a sign was posted on the front door that threatened, anyone who enters will be killed. And as I volunteered as a clinic escort, violent protesters hit us with their signs. In the Bray case, Judge Roberts is one of the authors of a brief arguing in support of the legal position of violent clinical protesters. Nowhere in the brief did the government disavow the actions or the tactics of the violent demonstrators, not even in a footnote. When women's health centers in Wichita, Wichita Kansas were being blockaded in 1991, a district court issued an injunction against the protesters to protect women who were attempting to enter the centers. Judge Roberts was involved in a highly unusual intervention that sought to lift the injunction, even though the injunction was preventing violence and safeguarding women. This week, Judge Roberts repeatedly refused to answer whether he will protect the basic rights and freedoms of all Americans. Senator Specter himself pointed out that Roe has been reaffirmed by the Supreme Court multiple times. Notably, Judge Roberts has acknowledged that there is a right to contraception. He is comfortable making these statements, but he steadfastly refuses to acknowledge the same about the right to abortion. As a legal matter, we believe that the right to choose abortion is as settled a fundamental right 
as the right to contraception. No one should be confirmed to a lifetime position with the power to take away the right to choose who does not accept that proposition. When Judge Roberts answers questions about Griswold and Eisenstadt, but refuses when it comes to Roe and Casey, Judge Roberts is drawing lines of convenience, not rules of law. No matter how remarkable the person or impressive the resume, a nominee for Chief Justice ought to be able to tell the American people whether the Constitution allows states to ban abortion. Judge Roberts has refused to do so, even when pressed by you. We still do not know whether a Roberts court would preside over the creation of two Americas, one where women with means can obtain abortions, even if they are not legal, and one where women without resources cannot. When our patient's safety is at stake, when the ability of families Mr. to make Earl, personal, summarize I will, point, private decisions about their lives is at stake, when women's status in our society is at stake, accepting anything less than clarity would simply be irresponsible. You all know that Justice Harry Blackman wrote the majority opinion in the Roe v. Wade decision. In the decades following that decision, as more justices on the court ruled to overturn Roe, Blackman wrote, a chill wind blows. His words echo hauntingly today. Senators, I urge you to, to not confirm Judge John Roberts as Chief Justice, and I thank you so much for the honor and privilege of addressing you today. Thank you very much, Ms. Pearl. Uh, just a few questions. It's, uh, the hour is growing late. Uh, Ms. Pearl, the hearing has dealt extensively with the concerns that you have addressed, a woman's right to choose, and it uh, boiled down really to uh, Judge Roberts' statement that he felt he could not uh, speak to that issue as a matter of judicial independence in a context where there are cases on the docket which raise the issue, unlike Griswold, which has been pretty well established as a right to privacy, something I asked him about. And, and others did. Uh, do you think that, uh, I know you'd like to have an answer. People who want to overrule Roe uh, would also like to have an answer. Uh, but do you think there's any basis for Judge Roberts' statement that he simply cannot prejudge the matter before it comes before him as a matter of uh, independence, judicial independence, and that he can't sell his vote uh, one way or another? There are people on this panel on both sides of the issue. I think we're divided among the 18, nine to nine. Mm -hmm. Doesn't he have a point that uh, he can't prejudge the case? Uh, Senator, thank you. I, I don't think that that is, um, that is correct. We are not asking him to prejudge any case. We've not presented him with any facts of any particular case. But you're asking him to say he would sustain Roe versus Wade's woman's right to choose. We are asking him whether the precedent that has been established, and as you said, reaffirmed 38 times, is set a law of this land, established rights. You know, women have counted on that right for almost two generations, for 32 years. It's hard to believe that that is not something that ought to be considered settled law. It was the Roe decision that was only one year after the Eisenstadt decision. So the time frame shouldn't matter, and it has been looked at so many more times. This is a, you know, the decision, the, the question of whether and when to become a parent is such a fundamental right
that it is hard to believe that it is even open for any kind of question. And if Judge Roberts was willing to talk about the right to privacy as it relates to contraception, he ought to have been able to talk about it as it relates to abortion. Reproductive rights are simply not to be negotiated. Professor Rice, going back to your J.D. from Yale, uh, what is your evaluation of the issue of judicial independence and not uh, soliciting votes on this committee or in the Senate by a promise one way or the other on Roe versus Wade when the issue is on the docket for the Supreme Court in the next term? I think it's entirely dependent, uh, Mr. Chairman, on how settled the case is. That is, if you have something that is a super, super, super duper precedent, as you repeatedly talk about it, then it would seem to be entirely appropriate for a candidate, uh, a nominee, to say, I would follow a super-duper precedent, uh, just like uh, Wickard versus Fillmore. On the other hand, if it's up in the air, if it really is up in the air, if there are a lot of 5-4 decisions, uh, it's likely to come before him, uh, he doesn't want to reveal his cards right now because it would be inappropriate, uh, then it's a different story. Uh, in this case, it seems to me uh, that Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. It's been there for many years. Why can't a nominee simply say clearly, I support Roe v. Wade as the law of the land. Well, <clears throat> unlike uh, uh, the right to privacy or contraceptives for marriage or for single people, uh, there's a great debate. I don't have to describe it for you, a great debate in this country about the subject. If the definition, if it's up in the air or settled, uh, I don't think, uh, as you heard me say, that we could ask him about, uh, about his decision. But on the uh, factors which uh, Ms. Pearl articulates, uh, uh, he testified he would give them uh, great weight. Uh, it's really unpredictable uh, as to what any nominee is going to do. Who would have predicted that Justice Kennedy would have supported Roe versus Wade? The cases are legion in the history of the court. The only, uh, the only consistency is one of surprise. Rabbi uh, uh, Polakoff, uh, as your uh, organization taken a position on any uh, Supreme Court nominees in the past? Uh, no, Mr. Chairman, we haven't, but uh, we feel that in a generation and certainly in today's society uh, with traditional values and religious ethics threatened that it's important for there to be a spiritual voice uh, added to the uh, hearings uh, by this distinguished group, and that's why we're here today. Governor Engler, my time's almost to expire, but I have a time for a question. Does this mean the National Association for Manufacturers is going to become more politically active, like supporting asbestos reform? <laughs> <laughs> you can count on that, Senator. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you very, very much. Thank you super-duper much. To you. <laughs> I thank you, and I'm hoping that the expeditious conclusion of this matter will allow a little bit of floor time for that. Well, uh, this committee has done its job. It has indeed. So now it's up to the floor time of the leader, Senator Leahy. Uh, I'm so tempted, but I will uh, withhold. <laughs> Senator Hatch. Well, let me ask, uh, Ms. Pearl, let me ask you the same question I asked Marcia Greenberger for whom I have great respect as well. Uh, since uh, Justice Rehnquist, or even before, has Planned Parenthood ever approved or endorsed or accepted or 
uh, been favorably disposed towards any Republican nominee to the uh, United States Supreme Court. Um, thank you, Senator. I'd like to start by saying that Planned Parenthood does not make these kinds of decisions on any kind of partisan basis. It's not that we approve or disapprove of Republican nominees, approve or disapprove of Democratic nominees. To, the, to your specific point, however, I am mostly certain um, and I am very happy to go back and check and send you a letter to confirm that Planned Parenthood did not take a position on, on uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor's nomination to the Supreme Court. But that's the only one you can recall? That is the one that I recall right now, yes. I know your group is a close ally of the National Organization for Women. <coughs> who has test they've testified, I think, in almost every one except this one. Um, both of your groups, for example, I think are members of the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights. Uh, we are not. You're not. Okay. We are. Tr we are have actually have an application pending. Uh, now oppose Judge uh, Justice John Paul Stevens' nomination in 1975, saying his record showed he would quote bend over backwards unquote to limit the right to abortion. We all know that didn't happen. Now opposed to Justice Anthony Kennedy's nomination in 1987, saying his record shows a, quote, total lack of commitment to equality and justice under law, unquote. Uh, I had a flyer uh, that I saw circulated in 1990 by the National Organization for Women opposing the nomination of David Souter. It says, stop Souter or women will die. I raise, uh, the reason I raise this is because, as we all know, justice, these justices have supported <coughs> abortion rights. I personally don't know where Justice Roberts is on that issue, and I don't think you do, nor do I think anybody else does, because he has never really opined on it. Now, you cite cases where he was working for the Reagan administration, uh, which clearly uh, uh, was against uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, but he was a staff attorney uh, making the legal arguments that they wanted him to make, which is quite a bit different from, from saddling him with that particular philosophy. Now, it turns out that the absolute and categorical certainty of those positions against uh, Justice Stevens, Kennedy, and Souter were just plain wrong. And, and see, that's where I'm having some difficulty here. Uh, did your group participate in the Stop Suitor rally that was, that advertised uh, on that flyer that went out? Uh, did you participate in that? I, I honestly, I do not know the answer to that. Well, I don't either, but I, I, I seem to recall that Planned Parenthood did, and they had a right to if they wanted to. It's just that they, well, that was wrong. Uh, and so what I'm saying is, it's one thing to think a person may be going to vote a certain way on the court. But you don't know how just, just, Justice Roberts will vote. I don't know how he will vote. You may be right. You may be wrong as Planned Parenthood, well, I think Planned Parenthood was part of it now, the Alliance uh, for Justice, the uh, NARAL, uh, uh, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, they were all wrong on those three justices. Now, if we, if we, uh, make these decisions solely because somebody thinks somebody might not live up to what they think is uh, the law should be, there'd be very few people ever privileged to serve on the United States Supreme Court if both sides started to play that game. So 
All I can say is this, is that your organization is a great organization. I don't agree with some of the policies, but uh, I've also supported you with regard to uh, some aspects of, of, of the work that you're trying to do, but, but not on the abortion side of it. But it seems to me that there's a responsibility to not prejudge people who have the eminent qualifications that just Judge Roberts has. And that's that worries me just a, just a wee bit, uh, but I've been interested in your testimony and certainly have, have listened to it, and as I have to all of yours, I welcome my old friend Robert Rice here. I, he's always a controversial uh, person who makes us all think more all the time, and you have done it here again today deliberately, I know. And uh, I do respect you and appreciate you, and, but, uh, and I like alternative points of view. I think that's a good thing for our society. And you certainly present plenty of them for us to think about up here, both Democrats and Republicans. But thank you, Mr. Chairman. I thank you, Senator Hatch. Senator Kennedy? <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman. I welcome the panel, and I particularly welcome Bob Reich. He's been a longtime friend. I've been a great admirer of all of his uh, strong commitment to public policy and uh, uh, public life uh, generally. It's uh, been an extraordinary career for he and his wife as well, who've, who've shared a strong commitment to, uh, to public service. Um, Dr. Reich, uh, let me uh, ask you, uh, the, uh, the Judge Roberts, uh, uh, in one of his uh, statements, said the course, courts are passive institutions. Is that, uh, uh, how do you, how do you re react to that as a, as a concept? Is that your view about uh, where the, what the courts are, what the courts can be, what the courts should be, in trying, in particular, uh, to help the country uh, respond to this uh, extraordinary uh, challenge, which all Americans are reminded of uh, this past couple of weeks with uh, Katrina, when we sort of tore back the fabric of America in, in uh, the Gulf states and saw so many people that have been left out and left out behind. Uh, we're not talking about handouts, what we're talking about is a hand up. And shouldn't uh, the courts be a part of a process and where the executive and the Congress and the courts are moving in harmony to try and make this a fairer country and a more equitable land? And, and if that is so, uh, what's your reaction to the comment that the courts are passive institutions? Uh, Senator, the courts are not passive. Anybody who watches carefully, reads Supreme Court opinions, looks at the history of the Supreme Court, understands that they are far from passive institutions. Interpretations of the 14th Amendment, Equal Protection Clause, have historically changed the face of this nation in terms of bringing minorities and women into the mainstream. When I was Secretary of Labor, one of my duties was to implement the Family and Medical Leave Act. Well, that was a hard-fought piece of legislation. You know, you were actively involved. First piece of legislation passed by the Clinton administration that we got through, at least uh, signed into law by Bill Clinton. Uh, well, we did some regulations pursuant to that. Some common sense regulations struck down by this Supreme Court in a very close 5-4 decision, it seems to me, I, I believe I'm right, uh, said that that particular regulation simply required that an employer notify an employee of his or her family medical leave rights uh, was inconsistent with the purpose of the act. Well, a judgment that a particular regulation is inconsistent with the purpose of an act 
is not a neutral, passive decision. The court is an active instrument of public policy. It has values, social policy, economic policy, and look at Senator, all of you, I understand, this is a tough one. This is a roll of the dice. I mean, you don't have, there's not a lot, there are not a lot of decisions, not a lot of court decisions. There's some memoranda. You had difficulty getting from the administration a lot of uh, pieces of information. Uh, but, and it's presumptuous of me to tell you what to do, but the stakes are so huge here for the country. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't see how you can, in good faith, given that the court is not a passive institution, uh, turn the country over uh, to a court, and it will be turning the country over to a court where you just don't know what's going to happen. Well, <clears throat> I was uh, somewhat uh, disappointed that in uh, the various uh, areas of public policy where uh, Judge Roberts had been so active. I mean, he had obviously uh, solicited the job to serve in the administration, uh, he was selected by the administration uh, to uh, to serve uh, in the uh, Justice Department, and uh, he felt very comfortable ideologically being there, all of which is, uh, I respect, and his commitment to public service, but he wanted to be in there, and he felt very comfortable, and he was promoted all the way through there. So he had these series of memorandas uh, uh, stating administration position. And it was always the question whether this was a, just stating the position or what percent of this was uh, his own views. Uh, the, the point that uh, I thought was uh, somewhat disappointing was asked is, given that was 20 years ago, what, would you, what was your position today on these uh, issues? And it seemed to me to be pretty uh, uh, ordinary that people would say, look, those were my views then, those of the administration. Today I look at X, Y, and Z, whether it is... Uh, on the issues of uh, civil rights, whether it is on women's rights, whether it was uh, on the issues on, on Grove City, which is, was always amazing to me after we had fought through all of the Civil Rights Act that an individual could feel, and with all the money that was going to universities with tuition, which was keeping them running, that uh, you would have an individual that would say, well, we want it uh, just program specific. So. If they don't discriminate in the admissions or the financial office, the admissions office, they can discriminate wherever they want at the university. I mean, after we had gone through so much in terms of uh, the, the battle uh, to uh, end discrimination, and the American people were at a position where they felt that we shouldn't uh, permit uh, taxpayers to be funded for discriminatory purposes. Um, I think my, my time is uh, over. If, if you, I think the chairman might give you 15 seconds or something to respond if you could. Uh, Senator, what's come out so far is this man is obviously a nice fellow. People like him. He's a, he's a very, very bright, if not brilliant, jurist and, and, uh, and an extremely thoughtful lawyer. Uh, but he has certain ideological predispositions. He has values. Those values are way to the right of the mainstream in America. I don't think there's any question about it. Uh, and so it is up to all of you to decide whether you want to put somebody in as Chief Justice who's that far to the right. I think it's as simple and direct as that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Kennedy. Senator Sessions? Yeah. I'll say Senator Hatch left, but here's the uh, stop suitor. Our women will die, Ed. Uh, just through 
found, so I guess that did not prove to be a good prediction, except uh, a lot of women partially born have died since um, Justice Souter went on the court. Uh, as I think to, that a part of the record, Senator Sessions? Yes, I would offer that for the record. Without objection. I think, uh, Mr. Reich, uh, that Judge Roberts has a value that he's expressed articulately, beautifully, repeatedly, that he loves the law. He loves the court, and he believes a court has a rule, has a role to be a neutral arbiter and not to impose its personal views. And I don't think that's a man, I don't think he brings that because he may be politically conservative and believes in lower taxes or whatever he believes in politically. I think that's his deepest and highest value that was repeatedly stated here uh, many, many times. And I think that's exactly what we need in the courts of America today. And uh, I think the people of this country will be more respectful of the court if the court returns to that role. That's my personal view. Miss Thistlewaite, I've tried to think over the years about appropriate uh, approaches to the church-state issue. Um, Methodist myself and been involved in some of these things. I see your liberation theologist or so, but uh, let me say this. You've expressed some pretty strong views about the need for a wall between church and state, and just um, yesterday, the Supreme Court a district court, following what he thought was the command of the Ninth Circuit, ruled that the Pledge of Allegiance, which has under God in it, is unconstitutional. Uh, do you have an opinion about that? I think it's in some ways consistent with some rulings in the Supreme Court, as I shared with Judge Roberts, and I think it's perhaps inconsistent with others. Uh, how do you feel about the wisdom of having those words in the Pledge of Allegiance? Well, I'm very interested, Senator Sessions, to know whether you think people will be increased in their faith if they just say those words repetitively. I don't know what the goal is if it is not to establish a deistic religion. Because if it is to include the words so that they can be historical, as I'm citing from the founders, you know, God doesn't need your help. So, if it's historical, that was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. It was not even original in the Pledge. I look at the people out on the street demonstrating. They seem to feel, the people in favor, after the, you know, the press show us uh, the pictures of people demonstrating after this decision was made, and the people seem to feel it is prayer. And if it is prayer, then I think it's unconstitutional. Well, what about, uh, I guess you would share, you would further say that uh, we should take in God we trust off the coins? Do I think it's a good idea to confuse Caesar and God? No, I don't. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar and what is God what is God's. I don't you think that's a good idea. You would oppose then the chaplain of the United States Senate? Pardon me? you oppose the position of chaplain in the United States Senate? Do I think you all need spiritual guidance? <laughs> <laughs> That's part of it, perhaps. <laughs> I think it's okay if you rotate it around. Um, 
but I'm not the constitutional lawyer. I'm a pastor. Well, I'm me, kind uh, of in favor of pastoral care. So. Well, I would, would say this. Um, I think that it is an absolute truth that our uh, government was founded on a principle that we are created beings with certain inalienable rights. And uh, when you get in a secular, uh, like the Marxist ideologies, uh, that uh, they have no respect for life, not the same degree of it. And I think it's a unique portion of our great American spirit that every human being is respected specially because we believe they were created. And it, uh, such words as under God or in God we trust, I think are, are not sectarian. I do not believe they establish a religion, but it simply reflect a consensus view of probably 90% of Americans that there is a higher being. And uh, I think that uh, the Supreme Court authorities on these matters are somewhat strained and uh, confusing, and perhaps uh, Judge Roberts can improve that. I certainly hope so. I see my time is up. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Senator Sessions. Senator Coburn, do you have the last word? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, let, if, if, since I do, I, I would just like to compliment you and Senator Leahy. Uh, I'm sorry we can't hear you. <laughs> I'll say it again and again and again. If my budget's increased, I'd be happy to say it. Uh, but I, you know, as a freshman senator, uh, uh, the way this hearing's been conducted, uh, the leadership uh, that you, Mr. Chairman, and you, Mr. Leahy, have uh, conducted it under, uh, I think is reflective uh, of good qualities of the United States Senate and the country. Uh, and it kind of leads me it leads me to the questions that I have, especially for Dr. Thistlewaite, is the last statement that you said, you're not convinced that uh, John Roberts believes in the dream of America. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm just wondering, could anybody of conservative values believe in that dream? Is it possible? Because if, and I don't know John Roberts' actual answer. If I go to bed at night worrying if he's on the Supreme Court, I have completely opposite views than Planned Parenthood, certainly about reproduction and other issues. But the question is, is can somebody have values different, uh, conservative values, and, and believe in the dream of America and be a good judge? Is that possible? Yeah, I was very impressed by um, the gentleman who spoke last on the last panel, who was testifying to the fact that the definition of the word conservative has changed. Well, well and I, I, think I don't want to get into a discussion about the definition of conservative. I'm a known quantity, mm. all right? I'm a known quantity. People know my opinions. I, I'm not very quiet about them, sometimes to my own uh, uh, ill benefit. But the fact is, is it talks about what Senator Kennedy talked about, Senator Feinstein, is do they have a heart? And, and the question is, is can somebody have a set of values that are different than what you perceive to be okay for the American dream and still have the heart of a Senator Kennedy and make a good judge? And I'm very confused. Uh, about what I consider a very inflammatory statement about Ju Judge Roberts in your closing. Because what, what it does is it castigates people into categories, the very thing Jesus said we don't do. Uh, and and it, to me it's concerning uh, that we have this decision that we've already decided how he's going to decide. Well, I want to tell you, I spent two hours with him 
and, and I'm as pro-life as they come, and I can't tell you where he's going to be. And I tried to find out. And if I spent two hours with him, how in the world do you all know that he's not going to be? And how do you know, based on the history of the judges that have come before this committee before, who the same claims were made about, and the opposite results came about? And I think it undermines the testimony. And I think it, it lends for us to go back and reconsider as a nation, all of us, my, the people I represent, the viewpoints I represent, and the viewpoints you represent, is that maybe we don't know people's heart as well as we think we do when we speak out to make such a charge that John Roberts, you're not convinced he believes in the American dream. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm convinced he does. And I'm also convinced that he's got a great heart. And I've, sp I've spent hours upon hours here, and I've spent hours with him, and I've spent hours upon hours reading everything that has been brought up about John Roberts. And I think he's got the heart for the American dream. And I would hope, and I'll, I'll close where I ended, what we need in our country is more pulling together rather than pulling apart. And certainly, if that can happen anywhere, it can happen in our country. And I'll dedicate myself to try to do that on everything but spending. I'll make that exception. But I'll work to pull together. Because we're not really all that far, far apart. We're not that far apart. But we magnify and, and enlarge the areas where we are apart. And the love from the Almighty... That's what he wants in front of us. And it's my hope as we finish and the things that we do in this committee in the future and John Roberts' career, whatever it's going to be, will be a manifestation that he believes in the dream. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. May I Thank reply? you uh, very much, Senator Gore. Doctor, uh, just a wait, you want to make reply? a comment? Yes, yes go sir. ahead. Um, I wish I had been able to see more than 10% and it was said 10% is approximately the documents. I wish that we had been able to see more. I was hoping that the hearings would reveal more, but I can only tell you what's in my heart, and that is that the dream of the Constitution, that it does protect, that it is about the little guy, I am not convinced. And I just, you asked me to tell you what I think, and I tried to do the best I could. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Thistlewaite, uh, uh, for your uh, uh, comments. Uh, they're obviously very, very deeply heartfelt. And I think that's been reflected in uh, these hearings very, very uh, extensively. Uh, thank you, uh, panel, for uh, your very profound testimony. We have had. Uh, uh, 30 witnesses in today who have been very profound, excellent, insightful. Uh, I want to thank uh, my colleagues for their attendance. Uh, uh, we've worked in four days to take on an arduous task, and we've worked uh, late, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday into the, uh, into the evenings. And the attendance here, based on the experience I've had on this committee for 25 years, the attendance has been excellent because senators are very, very busy. Everybody has a, a half a dozen places where he or she has to be at any time, and the attendance has been really very good.
And I thank especially Senator Leahy for uh, the leadership uh, which he has provided. Uh, we have conferred at every step of the way and have had agreement uh, at virtually every step of the way. And where we haven't had agreement, uh, it has been uh, a very amicable agreement to disagree and not on the big points. So the big points we've uh, come to terms. I want to thank uh, Mike O'Neill, the uh, Chief Counsel, uh, and uh, Bruce Cohen, uh, Chief Counsel for Senator Leahy and the staffs. Staffs in the Judiciary Committee didn't have an August. They can pluck August right off the calendar. And they examined uh, uh, 71,000 pages of documents. And uh, they're used to all-nighters because they're all students and scholars. They had a lot of all-nighters. So I thank, uh, I thank the staff for doing that extraordinary job. Uh, I think it's not uh, inappropriate to say that uh, Senator uh, Frisk, the leader, uh, has... Uh, uh, commented about uh, the many good reports he's had at a time when the Congress has been under a lot of scrutiny for uh, uh, the hurricane and a lot of problems that uh, uh, it can be characterized by others. We were asked to conduct dignified hearings, and except for very minor occasions where uh, the witness uh, uh, might have been permitted a little more uh, opportunity to respond. It's been very, 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 very smooth sailing. So I'm appreciative as the chairman for what we have done. Before yielding to uh, Senator Leahy, I would ask unanimous consent that uh, uh, documents be included in the record, and the record will remain open for 24 hours so that questions can be submitted, and then we'll be moving ahead to an executive session by agreement uh, on the 22nd. Uh, week from today, and uh, Senator Leahy and I are uh, in agreement on uh, trying to keep the speeches short, long statements for the record, but to 10 minutes if we can, uh, providing that leadership, all the senators have their own rights and we don't want to impose upon them, but uh, where we have tried to establish time limits, uh, uh, there are 17 senators in this committee who like to say the 18th observe the rules. Uh, and. Uh, uh, all of us are willing to take some cutback when we've been able to move with dispatch and uh, get our business done. Uh, uh, senators, we, we are a notorious group. People want to know when we're going to finish this hearing today, and I said earlier, when the last senator stopped speaking. Now I'm stopping. I think, that's, I think that's a hint to me. Uh, I want you to know, first off, it's not been totally happy on this side we wanted to go through tomorrow and, and Saturday Mr. Chairman we're terribly disappointed you didn't make that possible and of course the uh, uh, Governor Angler knows what we're saying the um, uh, to be serious it is a serious matter I, I want to compliment the uh, the the key witness uh, uh, Judge Roberts uh, sitting here, we did ask him a lot of questions. Some he answered, some he did not. Uh, he knows our feelings on, on both sides of the aisle of that. Uh, he spent, I know, almost three hours uh, with me, and he spent hours upon hours with other members on both sides of the aisle. Um, how we'll vote, I mean, I have no idea how I'll vote. I suspect I'll probably be announcing it at some time prior to our uh, he, uh, hearing, but by Thursday, I, I and the others on this committee will have to vote. 
I think we have a very, as we have as strong a record as we're going to have, and I compliment the chairman in that regard, and I, compl uh, I compliment both uh, his chief of staff, Michael Neal, and mine, Bruce Cohen, uh, for this. And, but the people, the chairman is right in mentioning those who worked throughout August. I came down here during August and checked on what they were doing. It was extraordinary. I know from the voters came to my farm in Vermont almost every other day that they were making sure I knew what they were doing and that I would work with them. But it is extremely important for the country. Uh, I don't come into this with a preordained idea of how I'm going to vote. Uh, I do want to vote on what is best for my country. I do love my country. I wouldn't serve here if I did not. Uh, my Paternal grandparents came to this country from another country not speaking the language. Both my grandfathers were stone cutters. Both would be proud that I had the opportunity to be here. Uh, it is a great opportunity. I don't take it lightly. We have said several times it's only 101 people who get to speak for all 280 million Americans on this. The president, when he makes the nomination, the 100 senators. I think the 100 senators have to make uh, the best decision possible. We have a great duty here in the advice and the uh, that we will give the rest of the Senate. I don't take that lightly. I do compliment the uh, chairman. He, is, uh, he and I have talked many, many times to this. He has accommodated the wishes of uh, people on my side of the aisle as he has on his side of the aisle. And we'll find out Thursday how we're going to vote. I, I, and I appreciate the panels. Many of you sat through here all day, a long time. I know many of you very well. I know how busy your schedules are. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> I saw Judge Roberts briefly in the hall, and he looked much relieved. I thanked him for his uh, good humor. It's a great tribute to our Constitution. Uh, the president uh, nominates... Uh, uh, the executive branch works in and the legislative branch and our committee here and later the full Senate and the judiciary. It's a great separation of power and great coordination. It's a great privilege to be a part of the system. And that concludes our hearing. Audible thanks you for listening to the Senate Judiciary Committee's hearings on the nomination of Judge John Roberts to be Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Please visit audible.com for the best downloadable audiobooks as well as subscriptions and podcasts of top audio programs, including Fresh Air, Car Talk, Scientific American, Harvard Business Review, and Charlie Rose. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.